Welcome to the Growing Interviews, a podcast brought to you from growing420.com. In the Growing Interviews, we talk to companies and people from around the world that are involved in the cannabis industry. We hope you enjoy this episode and check out our other podcasts. And of course, come and check out the online community at growing420.com. Right, what is up? Welcome to a, another episode of the Growing Diaries. We're very lucky to be joined for a part two um, with the Real Seed Company. Um, Massive thanks for coming back. And um, yeah, we thought we'd start off with what have you been up to since we last spoke, I think. See what you've been up to and roll from there. So, Well, uh, yeah, not a huge amount, really. Uh, to be honest, uh, was, off, um, was, off, was off for a bit, but um, I've, I've been kind of doing a bit of writing recently. There was a, a paper out... Um, on the uh, on the on the origins of, of cannabis by some Chinese universities, I just spent a bit of time reviewing that, and um, uh, that's up on the blog if people are interested. And and um, the other thing I was doing was just looking at <clears throat> a book uh, called The African Roots of Marijuana by Chris Duval, and uh, was also kind of going to do a review of that, but it got to a point where I really couldn't find anything nice to say about it. <laughs> so I can I can that and uh, sort of use some of the some of the ranting that I'd that I'd written down about it for some for some book material. So uh, mostly I've been sort of holed up in my flat uh, typing away since since we last chatted. But yeah, that's about that really. You got a lot of information to get out of your system now. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we like. So I'll just put I'll a link in chat too much. Yeah. So what were you saying, man? I'll just put a link in chat for everyone to go over and um, check out the website and that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so. Yeah, there's a there's um there's a blog section on the main website that then's got a link to my other blog, which has got the full kind of um, spiel about um this new paper out of China on on kind of claiming that everything comes from China, including cannabis, and it's all sort of, um, you know, that's a big politi- politicisation, of repoliticization of, of cannabis these days. Sort of different. I'm going to poke the bear, man. So do you think it's uh, like propaganda and there's lots of missing information that confirms stuff? Or have you got uh, a different line of thought? I mean... It's as much that that particular paper, which is like I say, it's on the on the blog. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, the um, Guang Guang Fun Run, I think his name was the guy who um, I can't pronounce his name properly, but who who, who who did the paper is the main guy. Yeah, I would say it's as much propaganda as it is science. I mean, it's a, it's a subtle form of propaganda in the sense it's not kind of out now absurdly distorting the data, but certainly they've. Method, the methodology of it they've deliberately done things to get the desired results and the research behind that the, the extra research on top of their use of sources and stuff absolutely it's thoroughly thoroughly politicized i mean to put that in context uh in turkey end of last year you know um whole a whole like publicly accessible seed collection loads of archaeological seed material that was held at the British Institute in Ankara. Any researcher could use it, Turkish, wherever they're from, could come and use all this seed material for genomics, whatever they wanted, archaeological studies, whatever they wanted to do with it. You know, they could 
access it. This letter arrived in the middle of September, dated two weeks in advance saying, today we're gonna to come and remove all of this material. The same afternoon as the letter arrived, these government officials walked in and carted off 108 boxes of seeds and four cupboards worth of stuff, of other stuff, modern reference stuff, and just declared it all property of the Turkish state. Two days later, they announced this big um, uh, Atatolm, I think it's called, like Ancestral Seed Project, is announced by President Erdogan's wife. It's this big nationalist thing. It's all about roots. We're from here. The Turks have been here forever. You know, it's it's, it's a kind of ethno-nationalist thing. You know, to have those seeds and to have these projects, it's all about like tying yourself to the land and legitimizing yourself. So there's this, you know, this is big. This is going to happen to cannabis as well. You'll see more of this. Probably similar things would like to come out of India as well, I thought, at some point. Although, you know, it's, it's a little bit more complicated there. But there's a big wave of this sort of ethno-nationalism, call it. You know, certainly this paper out of China, the most recent one. Yeah, the, you know, the use of... the use of. I mean, there's all kinds of deep sort of examples I could give, but... For example, they're like using this pop science information claiming that there's like 12,000 year old hemp ceramic gold markings from Taiwan, right? Mm-hmm. As part of their sort of proof that cannabis was originally domesticated in, in just one time ever, as one domestication event of wild plant took place in China according to them like 10,000 years ago. And and, and the, their sort of origins that their, that their data is showing them are like, one is far, far, far in the Western Central Asia in Xinjiang. The other half of the data is saying that it's in Chifeng, which is far, far to the Northeast in Inner Mongolia. But they're kind of fudging all of that because they don't really want to get, you know, they don't want to be too clear because the, what they want to, the conclusion to be is it all comes from China. But then as, as, as extra weight for this, they're using this cord mark material from Taiwan, which is fucking miles away from where they're supposed, either of their sort of origin points are. And that's all being thrown in the mix, even though as, as native Chinese speakers, they will know full well that that stuff claiming, the stuff saying that there's cord, hemp cord markings on pottery, it's just a fucking mistranslation of, of this word ma, for, which refers to any kind of oil seed or fiber crop, right? Okay. So any, any native Chinese speaker is going to know that what they're writing down is fucking, excuse my friend, bullshit. Oh. But they're sort of still just chucking this all in the mix. It's, 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 this is what I mean by propaganda. You know? It's just warping the science as much as you, and data and, 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 and facts as much as you possibly can, as much as you can get away with, as much as you can dupe your audience. Because what they're aiming at isn't our scientists. This isn't a paper really aimed at scientists. This is a paper aimed at getting headlines in the New York Times and CNN and New, New Scientist, which is exactly what they got. They got all these headlines saying cannabis doesn't come from Central Asia, it comes from China, which is just a joke. It's like whole chunks of China are Central Asia, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, so Tibet is Central Asia, Xinjiang is Central Asia. Xinjiang is full of concentration camps where all the actual Central Asian people are being stuffed into right now, which is made, which is what made me so angry, which is why I wrote this um, thing about it. Not that it's going to make much difference because you know, the desired result has already been had, which is uh, crappy articles in the New York Times by people who didn't really understand what they were reading and went along with it. No, I think you're right, though, that 
Um, well, at least from what I've seen, the scientific community has kind of gone, hang on a minute, there's a lot of missing information that you've said you were putting in here and then just not put in here. Yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's certainly been, certainly the sort of, as John McPartland wrote a, a good sort of debunking of it, and he, 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 he goes into detail about how they deliberately used uh, certain modes on the programs to analyze the data to give them the outcome that they wanted, you know? So yeah, there's all kinds of little, little, little things they did. I mean, the margins of error on the dates are like 6,000 years, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's laughable when you start to look at it. But so it it could have been in the future, maybe. But it's not aimed at a scientific audience. It was aimed at journalists who were just going to report it because it's because everyone everyone likes like a weed headline, right? It's like where does weed come from? You know, that's what the New York Times was saying. And it, oh, it comes from China. It comes from East Asia, not Central Asia, is what they're saying. But in this context, when you're talking about the origins of cannabis, which is probably we're talking tens of millions of years ago, and then the domestication of cannabis, which we're talking, you know, at, the, at minimum five thousand years ago. To talk of to talk of these places as not Central Asia and actually really China, it's just complete nonsense. The the the, the first word that the Chinese used for themselves is only like most most about two and two thousand four hundred years ago. You know, it's, it's before the even formation of actual China. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, well, I mean, look, I mean, the PRC right now, People's Republic of China, it's uh, it's. Uh, I mean, the com communism is a Western Europe is a European invention. So, I mean, you know, from my perspective, it's a, the government there is a parasite on the Chinese people anyway. But that's just that's an ideological comment, you know. But in in the context of that's, that's just an opinion comment, right? But in the context of this, it's madness to to talk about this in 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 the way that the, that the guys wrote who wrote this paper mean when they talk of China, to talk of there being any meaningful connection between, you know, the, the people who are in what is now China who domesticated cannabis, which, if you ask my guess, would be something like 6,000 BCE-ish when they when that process started, so 8,000 years ago. It's, it's, it's sort of meaningless to talk, to talk in a politicised sense about China, which is what they are doing here to get these headlines it's it's, it's meaningless you know it, it, yes it's a place so the central chinese plain is a place geographically speaking but in the, in the context of national identity it's completely absurd and and then anyway you know more than likely cannabis was domesticated at many many different places and times anywhere between what's now like eastern europe sort of romania and japan you know? more than likely it happened Many, many times, so, um, in in different places. You know? So this sort of desire to claim it as being Chinese, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's 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 nobody's and it's everybody's. You know, it doesn't belong to anyone. It's like it's completely dark. Right on. I mean, I think Frenchy Canoli, uh, rest his soul, was actually following kind of this. Uh, migration of people and cannabis and when it kind of went from something that we brought with us to something it was cultivated because it's always been a plant around mankind is my understanding yeah 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 i mean it's um 
so so i mean you know if if, if you want to look I mean, the, the earliest archaeological cannabis comes from japan right? unfortunately for those guys who wrote that paper <laughs> uh, and uh yeah 8000 bc in okinashima or somewhere so there's this um there are these seeds that are in they were found in a it's the jomon culture they call it uh, we found in a kind of a food context, so it looks like people were actually eating eating them. And if you look at, and they may have been using them as a drug as well, we don't really know. But if you look at the seeds themselves, they have lost a kind of a wild syndrome, is what they call it in botanical speaking, where you have a sort of elongated base on the seeds, not not something that you'd see on the seeds that you're going to be growing, you know, elongated base with a kind of a horseshoe shape on it that's designed to um facilitate the seeds easily dropping off the plant so in on, on, on properly kind of wild plants or wild type plants you could say the seeds will kind of drop off during the summer during the growing season as the plants flowering will just fall around the place you know rather than like stay inside the buds as they would with the sort of thing people are growing so okay. is that specific to cannabis or is that kind of like for majority of plants in general it, 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 wild, 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 and domesticated seed syndrome will apply in other, in other plants as well. Like, oh, that's cool. But it, in, in in cannabis, it, it, you know, the sort of. So, but the, anyway, those those um, those seeds on 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 this particular. These these like ten thousand year old seeds already show the kind of loss of that, which imply implies that there's already a kind of process of domestication going on. Now, it could be that people were even these Neolithic bands that were kind of wandering around Asia were already in some way sort of intentionally cultivating it. But much more likely is what was happening was that they were wandering out, wandering about the place. Oh, I like the look of that cannabis plant. It's got lots of big flowers, smells kind of good. The seeds look a bit bigger. Let's grab that one and take it back and eat the seeds. So they bring it back to their little camp. And lo and behold, cannabis finds exactly the kind of environment it likes, which is disturbed soil, very rich, nitrogen-rich soil. So already you've got a kind of unconscious selection process going on, you know, because the types of plants people like are already the ones they're going to be bringing back to their camps. Then the plants are going to grow there because that's 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 naturally the sort of environment cannabis likes. Like in in the wild, where where you find it is along the edge of rivers where animals come to drink, right? Where they're where trampling around on the soil. They're shitting everywhere. People are hunting them and killing them. There's corpses of animals lying around. You get this really rich soil, you know, over hundreds of thousands of years. So that's where naturally where cannabis would have been growing in Eurasia anyway. But then it finds that sort of environment like replicated in a hunter-gatherer camp. So you already have this domestication process going on, you know. So that over over the course of a couple of thousand years, people bringing back the plants they like, you've already got. Uh, you know, so artificial selection going on. It's not a conscious process by humans deliberately doing it. It's not actual cultivation, but it's, it's, it is a form of domestication. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, like it, 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 it followed people around, you know, in, in botanical terms, they call it a camp, camp follower, you know. If, 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 you, if you were to go to, you know, back a hundred years or so when you still had proper kind of nomads, you used to have a bit in some places, but not, not so much these days. But you find that always around nomad encampment, 
movements in places like Mongolia and southern Russia, Kazakhstan, cannabis would be around because it just it's that's what it likes. It likes to be around people, basically. Oh no, man, that's kind of cool. But it, yeah, that it follows people. Well, I hear a lot of people say it's a teaching plant as well. So it kind of plays to my spiritual side, saying that it's always been there to kind of help out. It's never been too far away. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, these things are, there's certainly a very, very old uh, sacramental tradition of using it. There's no question about that. Um, it, the, you know, that's, that's, that's been recorded. Um, you know, Herodotus and the Greeks went up to the, the sort of environment I'm talking about where you have nomads. So in that case, we're talking like, he would have sailed up from either the, the, the coast of what's now Turkey or from Greece up to the northern, very far northern coast of, of the Black Sea and near to what's now Crimea. Um, and, you know, he, he, he wrote down what he saw and what people were reporting to him about how the nomadic horse tribes in those regions used to use cannabis. So we're talking like 2,400 years, 2,500-ish years ago, um, he, he described the sort of uh, sacramental uses of it, in, in uh, which was smoking right? um, at these uh, funeral um, uh, funerals for the for, for the Scythians, who, who were um, northern Iranian ethnically speaking, northern Iranian speaking, um, to Iron Age horse tribes. Right? These were the guys who. Uh, invented cavalry warfare. They invented the, the compound bow. They were they were known as the archers. That's what the not not as in um, Radio Four, but <laughs> as in, as in uh, different cooler, much cooler archers than Radio. <laughs> anyway, no, I mean they were famous for, the, for their ability to like take people out with a bow at astonishing distances. In, with in, in unbelievable accuracy, you know, like they, they dug up skulls from these areas I'm talking about in Ukraine and stuff, where where they've been somebody shot like right through the eye, you know, and and these were probably from a horse, you know, like with often with no saddle, you know, no they had no stirrups, they hadn't invented stirrups at that point, and they, and they were famous for this thing they would do, which was like if you were fighting them, uh, like the Romans and stuff who went to fight the Parthians, were basically the same kind of people we're talking about. And that, uh, this is you know, in, in Central Asia and what's now kind of uh, Eastern Iran and Afghanistan and stuff, they would, um, they, they, they would, if they were kicking your ass, they would just cut right through all the troops. And as they went past you, they'd turn around in the saddle at a full gallop with a compound bow, which we would struggle to even fucking draw, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they'd take you out before you even knew what happened. They'd shot you in the back as they went past, you know? And they'd also like faint, so they'd sort of gallop in pretend to run away and then everyone would run after them thinking, ah oh, yeah they're running away and then they'd all just turn around and just, just fucking drop you with a bunch of arrows in the face anyway they were you know the, the, these guys were pretty formidable so the um and and you know i don't think it's coincidental that there is only one sport that it actually makes sense to ban uh, cannabis uh, from which is archery because right? it's unbelievably good for steadying your hand so a lot of um, professional um, and now it's uh, archers will, will smoke a little bit before they shoot because it, it makes it makes you much more accurate. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So 
um, yeah, so that's what the uh, Persians used to call them, the Saka, which means like the archers or the shooters. And wow. so that's why the, that's why Herodotus actually went, um, this uh, Greek uh, guy, he went up to, the, to these places because he was really interested in their uh, military uh, strategies and stuff because um, they managed to basically kick the ass of the biggest superpower of, of course, I've done a lot of reading about that period of time. What I, right, what I right. remember that is I didn't know about the, the smoke and the cannabis and steady in the hand. Really interesting that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, oh, well, I mean, that's something I didn't know about, but I've, I've read a lot about that period in history and the tactics, and it wasn't um, common tactics. Like you said, it was, um, you know, pretending to run away. That just wasn't known at the time. At the time, it was head forward, steam in, and it was you know, playing tricks, basically, and they were quite proud of that back then in them areas. You know, it, it was sort of to... to to be the most mischievous um, in the battle and to trick your opponent. Um, so yeah, I've read a lot about that and the compound bows and that. So it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. What you're so basically like. Um, so I mean, to, for, for people who don't know it so well, I mean, if other people are interested, I mean, like, so these. So what had happened was Darius the, the first, who was the, yeah. the first sort of um, one of you know he, he wasn't the first Persian emperor, but he was the first to really turn Persia into. A, the first kind of global superpower. You know, he conquered all the way from Egypt right up into um, the, the, uh, ultimately all the way up into the, the fringes of what's now China, like up into Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and then all the way down into Northwest India. And uh, having done all that, he then decided, right, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna head around like across what's now Turkey over the Bosphorus into Europe. And then head all the way around the Black Sea, in into what's now Ukraine, there towards Crimea, and, and kick the ass of the Pontic Scythians. And uh, everyone was saying to him, "Don't do it! Don't do it! <laughs> Bad idea!" And he was like, "Well, I'm I'm Darius the first man. I, like all I do is kick people's ass." You know? So he had, had this huge army of just like of every place that he'd conquered, yeah, storming out into this sort of basically empty empty grassland, and. Um, yeah, and all the Scythians had to do was just keep, just keep like running away, and uh, burning, burning everything, filling in all the wells, and every time he tried to supply his troops, they just take out all the supply lines. And so he was basically stuck in the middle of nowhere with his massive army, <laughs> wondering what the hell to do with himself. <laughs> this is it. I mean, it's uh, this, uh, and it's yeah, it's the first sort of example of, of massive, massive hubris by a superpower. Mm. Which is then repeated time and again by the British, the Russians, the Americans. Yes. The same, yeah, same basic mistake. They didn't uh, change tactics either, which is the interesting thing. Uh, the book, yeah. The, the, I remember going back to Mongolia, you mentioned earlier, Genghis Khan. I remember reading a novel series on him, and it's a really good one because it, the, the, the fellow that does the books, he goes out and stays in the countries, learns about you know, making the bows, which is why this is all coming to my head. But that, I really love that series of books. And um, it, they, had, they haven't changed. It didn't change. I'm talking about 1200 BC now. I'm talking about, you know, back to like Darius. You're going back, you know, um, oh, 1200 AD, sorry, with Genghis Khan. So we're talking yeah, yeah, about yeah. tactics didn't change. They just continued doing their thing and it worked. They yeah. destroyed everything in their path with these same tactics. So it's, yeah. It's it, it worked right up until uh, essentially the Europeans spent enough time killing each other that they worked out new infantry techniques. Yeah. So that's once once the British got to India, East India Company, that's when cavalry warfare really ran up against 
a brick wall. But yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned um, uh, Genghis Khan because I mean that's sort of I mean, well we didn't we should put, maybe you were asking about like the spiritual uses of um, the plants. Yeah. So probably before we get because Genghis Khan is a big part of the history of cannabis, although not directly, but it's a big part of how it spread around the world. But I mean, okay. the Sidians, um, the Sidian stuff is is kind of really is really interesting though. Like um, what what you know what Herodotus was interested in was primarily because the Greeks used a very similar strategy to beat the Persians themselves, but they did it in naval battles. They just vanished into all the islands and stuff. Um, but you know, that's to him that was what was interesting. But he was fascinated by how different people did things. You know? So he wanted to just understand what the Scythians were about. But he he is the first guy who wrote he, he his first ever description of smoking cannabis, getting home cannabis is in his description of the Scythians. So they had these extraordinary um, funeral rituals where if one of their elite um, warriors uh died they, they called themselves Aryans, like uh, nobles you know, he, Herodotus calls them the royal Scythians, but uh, Aryan in this context isn't some nazi thing it's like just means like nobility you know? so all the iranian nomadic peoples called themselves that yeah uh, they're elite so when they had a burial for them they dig this enormous um pit like 40 days inland up, up the um Dnieper River, they call it the Barissimis, it was kind of a sacred river for them. So 40 days inland, they dig this huge pit. This is, this is how Herodotus describes it. And um, in that, well, f first, the corpse of the person who died, they'd like gut it all, <laughs> empty it out, fill it up with kind of herbs and stuff and cover it in wax, all kind of gory, put it on a big, um, wagon and they'd like all his kind of elite followers would sort of have to like cut shave off all their hair they have to like cut their faces up cut their ears like stick and he says they have to stick an arrow through their left hand essentially they're kind of symbolically killing themselves basically it's like um i'll, I'll, I'll kind of try and explain it but it's like a kind of shamanic um ritual basically what they're doing uh, sort of sympathetic magic basically and uh they follow they follow this wagon along like round all the different clans everyone from the different clans have to do the same thing so it's just this huge like mass of people dripping in blood and gore like following them out to this this pit out into into the middle of the grasslands when they get to the edge of the pit um like one of the re the retainers and the wine servers and the chef and all the different people who, who who are really close to this leader who's just died, they get brought to the edge, throttled, killed, dumped into this pit with the leader, along with like all his horses and stuff, stuck on spikes. <laughs> it's horrific, in this gory thing, surrounded with all their um, all his gold, all his best clothes and everything in this massive. They call them kurgans, and then and then this all gets covered over later on. So you have these huge mounds. If you go out to Ukraine and Russia and stuff, you see them. These huge, huge mounds, all filled with like gold and stuff, astonishing amounts of gold, because they were making tons and tons of money out of trading with the Greeks and the Persians and stuff. And um, and anyway, like uh, 
after all this horrible stuff has happened, then you eventually get to the cannabis. And Herodotus describes this like tripod tent that they cover in felt. And inside that, they put like what were kind of braziers or whatever with red hot coals and chuck the cannabis onto that and it all smokes up. So they've got their head inside this little tent. It's filling up with smoke. And then they're all getting stoned smoking that and they all come out like go to this tent like howling and wailing and screaming and stuff and i mean he couldn't really make sense of what was going on he thought Herodotus just thought it was some kind of a purification ritual and for him it was just basically the main significance of it was like wow i mean these Scythians are like really really far out and completely <laughs> completely extreme and not like us greeks who are all civilized and moderate and sensible yeah. and rational right I mean, in reality, what was going on was, I reckon, I mean, this is uh, Mitra Eliades, this um, Romanian um, expert in kind of shamanism and stuff. What was going on was essentially that the Scythians, when they believed after you died, that you had to get from this world to paradise. But to get there, you had to cross over this bridge called the Chin Chinvat Bridge, kind of the bridge of judgment. And if you were a good person, you got on your horse or whatever. If Assetians who are sort of descended from the Scythians, as they, as they tell it in their funeral rituals, you, you get on your horse and you, you know, you charge along towards the bridge. And if you're a good person, the bridge just expands into this marvelous, wonderful golden bridge and you just race across on your horse into paradise. If you've been a bit of a cunt, <laughs> you get to the bridge and it turns into a thin, thin razor. And unfortunately, oh, nice. for you, <laughs> unfortunately for you, underneath that is the pits of hell ready to gobble you up. You know, all these demons are rushing up to get you. Yeah. And actually, if you're a Sicilian leader, you've probably done a few bad things to get where you are. So you need a bit of help. So essentially, this is a kind of collective shamanizing in, in all these kind of steppe cultures, from nomadic cultures from Mongolia and stuff. There's all the same things going on. Forty days is this. Forty days is this shamanic number, you know. So the the, the, the burial pit's forty days out into the steppe. It's forty days before the you know, the shamans would guide the, the soul across to the underworld. So forty days before the, the smoke up. It's it's just a, it's, you see the number in all kinds of cultures around. Than old cultures and new cultures, you know, more modern recent cultures. But basically, they were, it was a kind of like a collective shamanizing. So these guys were symbolically killing themselves with all these lacerations and stuff. And then they finally they smoke cannabis to sort of, it, you know, to, to take you to the other side, basically, you know, to cross over with the dead person and make sure they get across. Because all these demons are trying to pull you down. Even the good person's got demons trying to drag them down. Off the bridge down into hell, you know. So, so, so they're all kind of banding together to to, to get their leader across, and 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 you know, they really, really believed. I mean, it's what well, I say. They really believed it. The amount of energy and labor that was expended in these kurgans and wasted in these kurgans is astonishing. These huge burial mounds. I mean, they'd literally take all the pasture land for like kilometers around. They dig the turf off it, cover it on the top of the kurgan. You know, so this guy's taking his horses. All his gold, his his closest retainers, everything, with them to the other side. You know? Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of the earliest, definite kind of spiritual quotes, and loosely speaking, 
spiritual use of cannabis was this pretty gruesome um, funeral ritual. And you find it in exactly the same context over in, in uh, Xinjiang, in the Pamirs, up in the mountains there, you find that's the oldest material evidence we've got for the, for the smoking of cannabis. It's exactly the same context, funerals and braziers. And uh, the tent itself that Herodotus describes, they found that in, an, in another burial in, in Paziri. So people used to accuse him of talking bullshit. You know, they used to call him the old liar in mm. Victorian classrooms, but everything he said has been vindicated one way or another like, uh, in, by the archaeology over the last hundred years or so. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, this doesn't really fit with the kind of like, um, you know, kind of this piece. <laughs> No, I don't know, man. I think it does. It's really, for me, it's highlighting em empathy. Like, it's such an empathetic act to kind of give up all that shit for somebody you cared about so deeply. And if, like, if a leader had gone and fucking uh, saved your personal household, like, I think a lot of people would feel at least fucking enough respect for him to go that far, at least in the time, if that makes any sense. Oh, I think that's a really astute observation. I mean, like, um, absolutely, this is about building intense uh, solidarity. And there's all kinds of uh, other things in Syrian culture that are very, very about exactly what you're saying. There's all kind of blood brother uh, sort of um, bonds that they made with these rites. And, and um, there's, you know, there's all kinds of, a lot of the, um, the Greek, um, uh, um, uh, Archaeological finds illustrating Scythians shows exactly really emphasizes that, um, that their culture is very, very much about building these strong bonds between people. And that echoes right down through into much later Iranian fraternities and, and um, things like the, the very, very, very closely connected with the cannabis culture that, that spread across um, the, the sort of second wave. Of, the Scythians really seem to be this first wave of diffusing cannabis out of. Central Asia and to, to all the cultures on the periphery. And then um, much later on, when Genghis Khan storms through around 1200, you have this second big wave spreading out into places like India and, and the Middle East and stuff, um, which that initiates. So, and, 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 and very much, this, you know, we're talking a huge, huge swathes of time, but this, this same kind of. Um, Sort of brotherhood, fraternity type cultures that were involved in um, in the, you know, the calendars and things who, who were involved in, in diffusing that out again. You know? So yeah, I mean, it's um, I think I think you're really right to point to that. It's not it, it's not it doesn't sit comfortably with um, a sort of Western um, uh, you know, because because like cannabis, I mean, it can it can it's like anything really. It, 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 in, in reality, you can turn it into a symbol of whatever you want it to mean. The qu question is, is there something inherent to it? Does it make you, is, is cannabis inherently peaceful, for example? I would say no. But if you believe it is, then of course, it, you, it, it can become that. Um, but, um, you know, I think the early evidence points to it being used an awful lot in battles, for example, as a, as a, as a, as a sort of, um, as, as much as as much as anything to do with what we with some sort of sixties associated with it, it has some 
there's, there's a strong, strong links with it, there's, which you can see in you know in modern in modern contexts in Afghanistan. You know, you see videos of Mujahideen in the 80s. It starts with them sitting around hitting one of these huge Afghan chillums, you know, these floor-standing Afghan chillums. They're not like the Sadhus chillums. They're, they're like monster things that you can fit like 10 grams of passion or whatever if you want, blazing away on those. And then and then uh, picking up their AK-47s and rushing out the wall of this compound and blazing away with machine guns. You know? and, and that's like, um, that's, not a, that's not weird in, in the context of, that culture is actually just a very, very well-established use of cannabis. You know, you use it to get into a state of mind where you basically, there's nothing for fear to touch because you're so far gone that, that you're in the zone. You know, you just do what you do. Yeah. So a lot of things you're saying, it was in this series that I read and it was, uh, again, with Matt's Kegis Khan, but right. um, I know. Uh, some of the, the, the hardest people he came up against was these assassins, and I believe it was in what you would class as Afghanistan now, but that was what they exactly what they used hash for. It was to make them untouchable, to make them um, impre- you know, believe that when using this, when they would go out and they would... Um, it wasn't an army, it was... Um, it's Ishmaelis, yeah. It's Ishmaelis. Yeah. And, and yeah, would, it would make them impregnable. They couldn't die in their beliefs when they were, you know, high on hash, and that would go out and then they would do what they would do so that's yeah, quite mad that's a really interesting one that one because if you if you, if you talk to modern ismailis ismailis themselves they will deny that there's ever a thing and there's no question that the, that the assassins were a thing in the sense that like um uh, the old the, hassan sab or whatever he the um the nizari ismailis he had this assassin network that it was trying to take people out of like, it, it, it even tried to assassinate one of the English crusader kings, I forget which one, but I mean, yeah, they 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 um they were assassinating people all over the place. But the question whether they actually were using cannabis as part of it is, a, it's, that seems to have been a story that was cooked up by various Western travelers like Marco Polo and stuff. Oh, okay. But, but basically because these guys, like um, they were, they were in what's now northern Iran. But then, as you were saying, they, they went right over east towards what's now Afghanistan, like kind of Khorasan region of northeastern Iran, mm. and they had castles all around there on these kind of frontier mountainous regions. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, um, the the this thing of them being called like the I think it was Hashishia, which is like an Arabic word, and it. It could imply that they were using cannabis, but it could also just be like a put down. It's basically like calling someone scum, you know, not because oh, okay. of itself, but because it, it was sort of it means like weed or or like trash. Basically, it's like just calling them like riffraff, you know, which yeah. was basically because there were all kinds of fraternities that were using cannabis around that time in those sort of areas. So it's, which all had a really, basically a reputation. They were like, sort of, I don't know how to describe it. Think of like Robin Hood, essentially. They were like, good guys or bad guys, depends on the context, depends who you are. You know, they could be a threat, yeah, yeah. or they could be, but they're essentially like initiation, initiatory groups to get in to join it. You had to go through an initiation. And then once you were in the groups, there were all kinds of, basically like rules about extreme loyalty to, to the group and 
they were often associated with certain like um, professions and stuff. But essentially, like there's all kinds of words for them. Like they would be called like futura or um, let me just have a lot of looking at it today. They're like um, ayar ayari. So like they were. It sort of means it can mean all kinds of things like robes or whatever in, in different contexts. But um, the uh, anyway, like um, sorry, I've got, I've got um, okay. So like yeah, anyway, they 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 were associated with cannabis use. I I suspect, but we don't really see that until a bit later on when you get a kind of that blends together with like these very sort of um. Um, extreme forms of Islam, not extreme like Al Qaeda, ISIS extreme, but like extreme anti-society, anti-anti sort of um, anti-bourgeois, anti-capitalist, in, 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 if you want to put it in modern terms, radical Islamic groups that, after Genghis Khan stormed through all these areas and basically killed everyone, these guys became uh, very suddenly sort of appear out of. Uh, places like now Afghanistan and Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and stuff, suddenly like waves of them start pouring into the Middle East and Turkey and India and places, bringing with them this like radical cannabis culture, essentially. So then then you get, definitely do have um, these kind of um, anarchic, anti-social um, uh, associations with cannabis that, that make sense to us these days in the context of sort of the 1960s and hippies and stuff that kind of image is very very similar in some ways you know? um, would it be fair to kind of put it in line with about the time of the du duality was becoming the forefront of religions and that you know that there wasn't always a single good and a single bad that things could be good at some times and bad at other times i mean the the stuff that this to go back to the Syrians, there their perspective sort of uh, like um mazdaism which is like kind of pre it's like pre is pre zoroastrianism is very very dualistic so the yeah. world was split in definitively into good and bad you know, unquestionably um with these kalanda guys they definitely regarded themselves as being like the living saints, you know, they were they were God's people, God's God's friends, you know, God's unruly friends is the best book about it. It's called God's unruly friends. They they were like they believe themselves to be that essentially like the world was here for them, you know, God's creation was here for them. Everyone else was just fucking it up by only caring about money and you know this kind of thing. So they were they were they really were like. They deliberately didn't have children. They often like engaged in public acts of sodomy inside mosques. They turned their dogs into mosques. They deliberately would defile everything that was associated with mainstream normal Islam. But they didn't follow Sharia law of any kind. So they regarded Sharia like interestingly, their take on Sharia law is very interesting because they basically regarded it as bullshit because it's not in the Quran. There's only four rules in the Quran about how you punish people. So all, all the stuff we talk about Sharia, like it's some monolithic thing that's all fixed. It's not at all, even in, in any kind of Islam, it's a contested, negotiated, debated, deliberated thing. 
they just rejected it outright. Well, like it's all bullshit, and we're going to pointedly piss people off. So they go around playing music. They turn up in towns, bands of like a hundred of them just playing drums and dancing around and getting stoned in everyone's face as much as they possibly could. You know, so it's a totally different kind of renunciation from what has gone before them, where you wandered off into living in a cave. They just turned it inside out. And we're like, we're going to do our renunciation right in the town square, in front of everyone. They'd, they'd walk around naked with like, they'd often like um, pierce like iron bars through their dicks and stuff, and stuff. <laughs> shaved off all their beards because they're, they're deliberately to piss off mainstream Muslims, shaved off all their beards, shaved off all their hair, they'd burn their hair off you know, to make themselves look as freaky as possible. They might like wander around with like a wool cloak on. A lot of the things that they were doing were like um, derived from these uh, much, much older um, uh, kind of brotherhood things I was vaguely talking about, possibly going right back even to Mithraic types, Mithraic cults and stuff. They do these, um, what's it called, Charzar, these four, four things they did at their initiations, like burning these three points onto them. Onto them, onto their bodies, and and shaving off their eyebrows and stuff. They're effectively trying to look like they were already dead, essentially. So it kind of connects to the Syrian thing. There's this idea that like they've effectively, by by getting fucked up on cannabis, in such a such an extreme extent, constantly, you know, extreme extreme amounts. They were kind of they in their opinion they just essentially sort of annihilated their ego. So there was nothing between them and God, essentially. Very extreme kind of religion, but extreme in a much cooler way than these wankers and the Taliban and stuff. It was oh, just yeah. boring cunts. <laughs> and you were saying, it, it, well, again, I, I can't go back, because I've, I've, I've read a lot about it, but I mean, I've, when I read these books, I hadn't read really until I started reading these series. Quite late in my teenage years, I hadn't really read books. And it really got me interested in it. But what I realised, and what you said there, so these nomadic tribes and these nomadic people, they were quite free in their beliefs, as in, you know, you're saying about the leaders being good or bad. Um, you know, they'd done bad things, and that was acceptable, you know, to help them get across that bridge. The reason I'm saying that is, is maybe the, the help of the spread of, you said about the, the Mongolians or Genghis Khan era, the spread and everything was... From what I've read about them, they were quite liberal. I mean, they, they adopted other religions. I mean, members of the same family would adopt different aspects of where they went. They were quite a free, loving people, which is quite a, a nice idea. And then you're speaking about some of the more extreme, you know, the modern day. That, you know, for barbarians of what they would have been called back then by these superpowers they were up against and destroying, which say, you know, they'll kill lots of people. But it was quite a free way to, to, to live and believe that the fact yeah. that you could be good, you could be bad. You know, and life wasn't black and white and there was grey areas. And the, the fact that they would adopt these different cultures as they moved through these areas, and they did. They well, I mean, the, I, may, I may not have made myself clear because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of throwing stuff out in a bit of a yeah. rambling way, but the, the, monk, the reason these Kalanda guys suddenly exploded out of, of, of Central Asia into India, into Turkey, into the Middle East and places, was because of the Mongol conquests. Um, when I mean, I'm, I'm not denying what you're saying, by the way, about the the Mongols. Actually, yeah, like you say, they adopted quite a number of different religions and their different dynasties and branches of them. Some of them were Buddhist and so on, you know. Yeah. But 
when Genghis Khan came through with that initial conquest, particularly of um, the Central Asian bits, we're talking about what's now kind of Afghanistan and Eastern Iran and Samarkand and all these places. He really wiped the place out, like big, because yeah, yeah. he was pissed off because of what the the the, the emperor of Khwarezmia or whatever it was called did. He really fucked up and and um, killed all his envoys. Genghis Khan sent these yeah. envoys over and, and and they just killed them all and sent them back. And so he just just did a scorched earth thing. And he didn't he didn't like the Kalandas. These guys I'm talking about, the Kalandas, who are these guys with the shaved heads, and extreme cannabis use. These, extreme um, dervishes and anarchists. Anarchists, uh, you could call them Sufis, but they weren't Sufis. They hated Sufis because Sufis were, Sufis are these Islamic mystics who were associated with, with an institutional Islam. These Kalanda guys I'm talking about were anti any kind of institution, any attempts to create anything, really they were anti, you know. But anyway, so they, they um, they, they spread because they were like a diaspora running away from the Mongol conquests in many ways, initially anyway. And then in the period after that, the Ilkhanid era, like you're saying, these Mongols of that, of that time in places like Persia were, they, it was like they built all these roads and there was a quite a free period of a couple of hundred years when the calendars really flourished. But the um, jumping around again, but to go back, you know, 1,700 years or whatever to the Scythians. Yeah, I mean, they they were quite an attractive prospect. If you were stuck in China, for example, in an urban agrarian society, if you were a farmer or a laborer, or many, many people of any kind of class, really, if you saw the nomads, you'd get the fuck out and join them if you could in many cases, because you had better life expectancy, better diet, more freedom. You were stuck in the farm, you were getting taxed, you were getting your grain surpluses taken from you, you were your labor exploited, you know? So this, so, you know, jumping across to China now, but the Great Wall, so-called, you know, that started getting built, um, those those walls started getting built along the frontiers of, around around the Chinese, the central Chinese plain, um, along Inner Mongolia, along all the deserts and steppe frontiers of, of, of China, of, of, of the sort of, part of China, this great wall got built, ostensibly to keep these kind of nomads out. And, you know, the no no nomadic groups like Scythians and Saka and Xiongnu and all the, the Xiongnu people called Huns and Turks, they weren't, they were Sogdians, they were like the Scythians. You know, they, they would have looked like, um, you know, like someone from Iran today. They, um, they uh, you know, the idea was traditionally that this wall got built to keep these rampaging nomadic hordes out of of china and there's some truth in that you know if there was a if, if there was a really bad period of bad climate and drought yeah the nomads would come and pillage the the, 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 the these places and loot these places or demand tribute anyway but in in there's more and more people look at it it seems like this these walls are as much as anything designed to keep people inside China, stop them from fucking off and joining the nomads, you know? Have it all in control, man. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, they're much better at, for that than they are for keeping out any nomads. I mean, how's the wall gonna, how's a sort of broken up wall gonna stop any nomad board getting through? It's not, not much use. On the other hand, it's pretty useful if you've got people all along it to spot anyone trying to, <laughs> trying to escape, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
so you know same story when 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 um when european ships used to turn up in um india and places if you were crew on those ships if you're a sailor or if you've been block hired to work on those ships as soon as you got paid fucking make a run for it and set up life in india rather than take your chances getting back to london you know where why would you want to go back you know if you've got your money and you've got a, a place that's much more a much more appealing prospect you know same story in many ways you know? um okay anyway. no I, I can definitely vibe with that like uh, i don't know i i always like the ulterior motive when things are put out there i think i got that message across before we started but um yeah i like to put me fucking tinfoil hat on and be like you know things haven't been right for a long time people have been trying to control people for far too long yeah i mean it's it's um i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't want to i mean i'm i mean i was we're talking broad brushstrokes right i mean like all these things in many ways it, when, when you start looking at the past in many ways you're telling a story about the present you know mm. i mean that's kind of what i was hinting at when i put a few things up on instagram about this about um you know um when people talk about um, the chillum smoking yogis with dreadlocks and stuff, you know? yeah, I mean, you know, they became the sort of um, an, an archetype for Westerners of the sort of the archetype of the sort of spiritual use of cannabis in in Asian culture, you know. Um, but that's only sort of since the '60s, it kind of got seized on as this um, as this it, it, they got seized on as this sort of image of of what, of what smoking cannabis is about in countries like India and Nepal and so on. But really that's mostly, that mostly what they've become is a kind of way for us in, in non-Asian cultures to talk about our ideas about what cannabis is about, you know? Because if you actually go into what the sadhus and, and you know, sannyasis and whatever you want to call them, were these yogi guys with the dreads and the chillums and that what they what they actually did and what they do is is a very 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 different from what they've become in the sort of western stereotypes of india and nepal and stuff so to some extent what i've been doing talk, talking about the Scythians and these kalanda guys is essentially talking about my own ideas of what cannabis is about you know but, yeah, but, it's, but it's still it's still i'm still trying to be honest to the to, to the detail as much as, as much as I can, you know, but, but um, I've heard similar from, uh, I think it was like Jama a Jamaican Rastafarian saying like, as soon as Rasta became the poster boy for ganja smokers, it lost its potency. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's, that sounds very plausible to me. It's not something I know so much about. I'm sort of, um, I'm, 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 I'm aware more of like the, the Asian roots of Rasta and stuff and, and how it's connected to, you know, the Indian um, uh, indentured labor and, and the other way Indian culture got taken across there um, by the British and things to work on, on the, when they took, when they took um, Indians, you know, cheated basically Indians into going over to work on uh, sugar, sugarcane plantations and stuff. So I'm aware of that sort of historical background to Rasta, but it's not something I can talk about with any sort of knowledge. But yes, yeah, another it's the other big, you know, stereotypal archetype of the, of the spirit of spiritual use of cannabis for, for, for people in, 
Western countries, whatever you want to say. It was very similar to the, like the yogis you described earlier, like the um, the Shivites who were going into deep meditation and using it as a sacrament before meditation. It's yeah. very similar to, in my understanding, as like a Rastafarian reasoning where everyone gets high together to kind of put the world to rights, basically. Uh, it's asking very similar questions just in a group or in an altruistic or a uh, introverted kind of fashion. Yeah, I mean, um, it, the, 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 the similarities probably have real historical roots. I mean, there's a general consensus that, I mean, obviously Ganja is an Indian word, and then Kali, Kali weed and stuff is it's from the word for buds, you know, the Kali and the flower and stuff. It's, you know, there's all kinds. I of, didn't know that. Can you yeah, elaborate slightly? Sorry. Well, I mean, the people people often claim that it's connected to Kali, the Indian god, but it's not. It's uh, so a lot of the language that's used around um, around around um, cannabis in in Rasta culture is, is is derived from Indian languages. You know, I mean, people will say it comes from Hindi, but the 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 people who would have been taken over to work on the plantations could have come from other bits of India, they might have been speaking Tamil or any kinds of Indian languages that are the root that the words got into Rasta culture from. But yeah, then you mix it up with some Christian ideas around the sacrament and sacramental, you know, the Eucharist, lamb's bread, you know, the, the, that's probably a Christian thing as far as I know. That but, makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you put know, those two together, so you've just said it there and that's like, fuck. Well, that's really interesting how well they go together. Yeah, so it's, it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid thing. But then all the stuff we've been talking about is hybrid. You know, it's like hybrids mm. of different cultures and stuff. So the sadhu thing with the dreads and, and stuff. Now, like you know, these are people I'm sure will disagree with me, but the idea of sadhus is peaceful. For example, now that's a that's a that's on, sh on shaky ground already. Like, I mean. The image of them as peaceful is probably really, really something that came about really following the era of Gandhi and and this pacifist movements of Gandhi and stuff, and that kind of got transposed onto the sadhus. But the sadhus themselves were militant orders. You know, they were. I mean, the hardcore guys you see walking around with the tridents or butt naked and stuff with the long dreads. They um. They were um. They they they. Some people reckon they probably derived from these guys I was talking about, the Kalandas. Now they came, Kalandas came pouring down into India after Genghis Khan stormed through Central Asia. And, um, you know, we're talking 1200s. And um, as you had the first kind of Muslim, um, you know, um, the Delhi Sultanate and all these kind of uh, Muslim. Uh, kingdoms and stuff in in North India and and the sadhus, I mean, for a long, long time anyway, like right up until the period when the British were in India. You know, we're talking sort of uh, when the East India Company was really tearing around the place in the 1700s. For a long, long time, no one really made this big, this sort of very, very dualistic distinction between. Um, Hindu ascetics and Muslim ascetics. I mean, there, there were, of course, there were very, there were, there were in some cases very clear distinctions. But when we're talking about the kind of culture of the sadhus, these dreadlock yogi guys, people would talk about them as fakirs, um, you know, 
which is, which is a, a name associated with Islam, really. It means like the poor, you know, in, but in the sense of someone who's given up, like given up the world, consciously given up the world, given up working, given up the fam family and just gone out to wonder, you know. So they're talking about them as fakirs. They'd also call them like yogis, sometimes bairagis, sannyasis, gosains. There's all kinds of different names for them, depending on which bit of India you're in. Because no one really knew exactly what they were taught, who they were really in some ways. They were quite an uncertain uh, entity, you know. And they'd, ro they'd roam around in these bands. Sometimes they'd settle down and farm for a bit. Sometimes you'd have a very charismatic leader, like um, who would essentially it become these um, mercenary outfits. You could hire them to fight for you in battles and stuff. So you have a guy like Anup Giri Basain in the 1700s. He fought for the Hindus. He fought, uh, fought for Hindu like Rajas. He fought against Hindu Rajas. You know, this is a, this is a, a Shaiva. You know, he's a Shiva worshipping guy. You know, he, he fought he fought um, for the Muslims. He fought against the Muslims like the Mughals. He fought for the British. He fought against the British. He'd swap sides whoever was paying him the most. Whoever he thought had the best chance of winning. You know? And this is this is a guy who. who he had, you know, tons and tons and tons of followers. Had all the dreadlocks, and I think we're talking in the era he probably would have been smoking hashish and stuff. Certainly would have been getting high on bang. And you know, but was he doing it for peaceful reasons? Probably, maybe sometimes for meditation. Other times he'd do it before he'd go out and kill people in battles. You know? wow. <laughs> so uh, yeah, man. I mean, just uh, for me personally, getting into some other plant medicines, I can almost see. The respect of looking through past the void one uh, before you go into battle, kind of coming to terms with the sense that all of this is part of the, the game and part of the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it could disconnect you from the fact that you're, you're, yeah, disembodying your own family. At fucking no matter where they're from. Yeah, well, I mean, you you were talking about dualism and stuff. I mean, these guys are hardcore non-dualists. You know, mm -hmm. hardcore non-dualists, especially if you get into. Um, uh, you know, the deep um, sort of, um, I mean, I keep jumping around, but... Sorry, I mean, that's probably my fault as well. No, 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 it's I not. Keep throwing you from well, top no, you're bringing up, like, really astute points, and they're just, like, setting off so many resonances for me that I'm trying to marshal them all into a coherent <laughs> sequence of thoughts. The, the thing is, it's like, looking at it backwards from the modern point of view, right? People will be listening to me going, what the fuck is Angus talking about? He's talking shit. I know what sadhus are, they're into Vedanta and this kind of stuff, right? This is a new idea. Vedanta, you know, non-dualist philosophy associated with a lot of these charismatic yogi figures who came around the West in the early 20th century, late 19th century and stuff, talking about peace and things and, 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 and non-dualism and that kind of stuff. That's something that, that evidence very, very strongly suggests that these sort of hardcore wandering yogi dreadlock guys like i'm talking about and period people the early early forms of them we're talking 1200s 1300s they were just anarchic bands roving around the place slowly they sort of attached themselves to monastic institutions got absorbed into indian society and kind of tamed and controlled you know and and, and then they started to become associated with shankara and vedanta and these quite um you know um these, these, these quite mild non-dualist philosophies. But 
but I mean, there's much more extreme non-dualism that they're associated with, like kind of um, Kashmiri Shaivism, people tend to call it, and that kind of stuff that's associated with the really radical, like hardcore end of um, Shaiva yogi stuff. You know? So yeah, I mean, there's this big, I mean, you were talking about going into battle and getting into these states of mind. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that cannabis has been used for, for I would guess, since people have been using it, more or less. You, know? it, it, you get into this non-referential state where there's nothing really for fear to touch. There's nothing really, there's no you to be scared, you know? You're just doing things, you know? You're, in this case, making sure you don't die and making sure someone else does. I really like that wording. There's no you to be scared. That's, yeah, well, that's fucking powerful. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm speculating, but it's very hard. No, to... no, I'm gonna use that in future. <laughs> like that, no, just because it's a very grounding notion. Like I don't know. Yeah, like but it's, it's, it, it's, it's in line with the philosophy, and I mean, I've, I've, I've tried to, you know, there are ritual i mean if, if, if we want to get it's sort of more 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 to ground all the speculation in 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 things you can actually read and look at you know the so you know i was the thing i actually posted to sort of advertise our chat was like talking about the sadhus and how a lot of what people say about them isn't true and stuff so this idea of cannabis and shiva having this ancient ancient connection that goes back thousands of years no evidence for that whatsoever. There's no evidence for any connection with Shiva until between cannabis and Shiva. Shiva, by the way, you should call him really if you're pronouncing it properly. But anyway, there's oh, no, well. there's no evidence. <laughs> there's no. I just wanted to put that out there. It doesn't really matter because everyone says it. Shiva, so Shiva it is. The you don't really see any definite connection between him and cannabis until the era of these Palanda guys I was talking about. These crazy ass sort of living dead bald guys come raging down into India in the 1200s after after Genghis Khan basically just Genghis Khan hated them you know he just used to kill them all and so did Gulagu uh, his grandson so they all looked for sanctuary in places like India that's when you see these extreme shy texts like the um, Matsendra Sangatara and stuff start talking about using cannabis as a part of deep meditation and deep yogic practices that's the first time you see any talk of it in in um, in, in indian culture once islam comes from central the central asian form of islam comes into india then you start to see sanskrit discussion of it where you can say definitively yes they're definitely talking about campus without a question and, and, and there's detailed discussion of using it in in the contexts of rituals um, that kind of stuff and non-dualistic like you're talking about non-dualistic philosophies um, and uh, yeah it's um, you know Siddhi Mulika they, talk, they call it in, in the Sandra Sangata so the um, the you know the root of the root of Siddhi is like can mean like power or magic or success accomplishment like spiritual accomplishment you know? so the root of spiritual accomplishment in in, in the context of the, the Matsendra Sangata, it means, it really means the supreme city, which means like super mundane city, you know, the city that's beyond the mind, beyond matter, the, the ultimate non-dual reality of which you can't say anything really. 
So it's high, high praise of cannabis, you know. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's twelve it's it's twelve hundred AD, not two thousand, three thousand. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating, man. Because I always uh, kind of associated uh, Shiva's use of cannabis to being that he tested every plant on earth to say what was good for mankind but i didn't have like, like you say there's no specific reference point to it oh that's, and, that's until that's, a, that's sorry. A real, sorry to interrupt you but yeah that's a, that's what you're talking about it's real that's that's factual information but these are things from much much later this is sort of 16th century those types of um, that's yeah that's fascinating for me because i'm kind of don't get me wrong the it's there but it's not there in black and white it's kind of there for the reader to extrapolate. Well, I mean, those those stories you're talking about, like uh, you know, um, uh, the churning of the ocean and, and drinking the poison, and well, you know, and the other stories of, of, of Shiva bringing cannabis down from the Himalayas. They're, they're things those stories of studies will tell now, you know, and, and they're they're there in the literature, but they're they're from this medieval era I'm talking about. Oh, before, interesting. Before people had to start telling these stories. Um, the, all the evidence strongly, strongly suggests that radical Muslim ascetics, radical Muslim renunciants had to bring cannabis culture down from Central Asia into India before it got going. Now, it, it could be like what I'm talking about now is from the, lit, the, the, the literary evidence that is available. You know? Of course, like absence of evidence doesn't mean that cannabis wasn't there, but there's just no evidence for it at all in the, in the, in the yogic culture of India until Muslims brought it in. Then you had this hybrid culture. And like I'm saying, a lot of people didn't make these distinct, these modern distinctions we make where we divide everything into categories of this renunciance a Muslim, this renunciance a Hindu. A lot of people just talk about these guys, these, these extreme yogis who are wandering around as, as fakirs, you know? Yeah. It would just be that particular fakir's uh, path was heavily laid with certain things. Like. I think there was just a lot more, the evidence suggests there was a lot more flexibility in these things. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So, and, but, but you know, I'm overstating it slightly, but just to no, make- It sounds like they're all individual teachers at that time. So it's like you, you haven't got a uh, dogmatic religion, you just have certain people pointing a direction. Well, you have a, you have a sort of hybrid, it's more, it's more that you have a hybrid culture, right? You have mm -hmm. a syncretistic culture of like openness, you have much, much more openness and receptiveness and mutual respect. You know, and stuff like you see up on the Instagram, I've been putting these pictures of, of, um, of Hindu yogis. Like, you know that because they're, they're, they're covered in um, ash. You know, they're painted as sort of blue-gray colors because they've covered their body in ash. So we can definitely say they're yogis and we can categorize them as Hindus. And then there's the dervishes who've got all the beards. In this case, they're, they're, so they're Sufis, Shatari, all the Sufis sitting around together as a shrine, discussing stuff, you know? mm -hmm. hanging out basically, almost certainly getting stones together, talking about stuff. And, and these ideas went from one, from, from one culture to the other. You'd find yogic manuals describing yoga techniques in Egypt, you know, because they'd say they'd go, they'd get onto ships and, and they'd be sailing across the places, you know. The, the, the guys who, who, who wrote down the uh, Sinsamida technique, as we call it these days, they were nuts right, in this uh, compendium, alchemical compendium called the Andakanda. And the Nats were influenced by Buddhism, they were influenced by Islam. They were, they were Shaivas fundamentally, but they were taking in these deep, deep influences from Buddhism. So there's a big spectrum of sort of 
of, of Nat figures like uh, Matsyendra, who I've been talking about, of the Matsyendra Sangata. He, you find him in Buddhism, you find him in what we call Hinduism, in, in Kathmandu, there's shrines to him where you know, everything melds together in very, very, you know, so different from what we're used to these days of this divisiveness, you know. Oh, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Buddhist. Walls and borders and yeah. 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 Words invented to divide. Before then it was like, okay, you're spiritual, I'm spiritual. Let's fucking blaze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 um, you know, um just to get back to the idea of this stuff traveling around. So, you know, the nuts almost certainly are the guys who took cannabis ganja, like um Sinsimila, you know, like over to um Indonesia and places, you know, where it blended with a culture that had been Buddhist for a long, long time in, 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 in places like Java and Bali and, and Sumatra and, and it slowly become more sort of um, what we would say Hindu, but, but fundamentally very Muslim as well, you know, and blended in. By the, time, by the time cannabis came over, it was fundamentally Muslim. There was a sultan, like female sultans in Napcha and places in Sumatra. But these Nat guys, you know, they, they, they probably introduced it over there. So it was these kind of hybrid cultures were taking plant around the place, you know, and um, not, you know, saying not not what we're used to these days, where we cut everything into these, you know, these categories. You know. I mean, I'm talking in big categories all the time but I'm t to try and make the point that the categories didn't really exist, you know, in the way we. They're there for us now, so we can define the time and place we're talking about. It wasn't there yeah. for them, right? Not in the not in the way that we would have been inclined to think. So the, you know, the big archetype of cannabis is part. Of, you, know, you read you read authoritative books by guys like Rob Clark and and, and um, people and Christopher and people these American academics, and then they they say stuff that's extraordinary, really. If you actually get into understanding the culture, you know, to talk about charas as a something from Hindu India. It's, it's, it's very, very, very far from. It's, it's very wrong, you know. But it's influence. It's in, this idea that it's Charas. Charas culture is from Hindu India. It, it, it's, it's very, very influenced by the hippie trail understanding of these things. Uh, whereas actually, you know, Charas is the word is from. Definitely, well, it's definitely associated with sieved hashish, dry sieved hashish, not hand dropped hashish originally and it comes from the word for a pouch which these kalanda guys would carry around with them it just means stash basically you've got your charas i mean it means you've got your charas as a pouch like charas done like hang from the waist of these yogis as they wandered around if they were wearing clothes which is not a guarantee <laughs> these kalanda guys they, they, were. they ain't got clothes they've still got a belt for their pouch <laughs> yeah well i mean often they'd have a very very loose um particular kind of uh a sort of um what's the words but like a long shirt you know be tied with loosely with a belt often butt naked underneath that but yeah with a hanging from the belt they have been looking at one of them today not today fucking this week i can't remember what they're called though they're real <laughs> Just, popular for when it's warm it's not even been that warm and i'm like what can i wear this fucking breeze better <laughs> i just like um, to get my bits out sorry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no why not man you know more for people uh, being inspired by these by these cultures why not Mm. Um, yeah, so anyway, so, you know, charas comes from stash, you know, essentially. That's what it used to mean. So you'd have your stash with you. And, you know, it probably made its way, 
as it spread more associated with the big leather bags that the, the hash would be kept in when traders brought it over. But I'm, I'm pretty confident it would have been used as a name. It became a name for cannabis in the same way Kif, we, we, Kif is a name for cannabis that people associate with Arab culture, but almost certainly comes from Persian for bag as well. You know, stash, basically, same meaning. So, you know, this this um this idea that you know i think we have to try and fit islam back into the into the 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 the, the, the archetypes of, of cannabis culture you know because if, if 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 we start excluding it in the way that the sort of hippie trail era people did many of them not all of them but you you're, you're going along intentionally or not consciously or not with a lot of really bad bigoted politics you know these days because politics is really bad in India these days about for Muslims, and um, you know that's a that's a political point. But anyway, you know it's like um, the, the 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 big the big impetus for what we call Hindu Indian cannabis culture was Islam, you know, for sure. You know, um, and the, the Nats were the Nats who invented um, uh, the Sinsamila technique, probably invented it. Certainly were the first people to write it down. You know they were they were getting this because they were chilling with these calendar dervishes and people like that at these shrines that they used to wander between as they wandered up into all around India, wandered up into Afghanistan, wandered up into Uzbekistan, right over to Iran. You know, right probably even some of them right up and as far as in possibly into China. You know, some of their ideas clearly show signs of. of um, interaction with um, Taoists and stuff. There were Taoists in, in Assam and places, but anyway, you know, big hybridization of ideas and cultures you know, going on. It's almost interpreting history through a modern um, understanding is what I think you're saying with the categories and the misunderstandings of different names. I mean, everything that we said, we spoke about tonight, you spoke about tonight, I've just been sitting here listening um, intently, but um, I think it's, a lot of it's misunderstanding, isn't it? Or miseducation or interpreting things through the modern understanding as in trying to put labels on things. There wasn't labels back then, the labels didn't exist. Like you've been saying the category didn't exist, but trying to interpret that in a modern way. They were much more flexible and fluid, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, like, yeah, that's exactly what I would and, and the rigidity, the rigidity of it, often was used by the British, for example, in India to create problems, you know, to, to, to create divisiveness, you know, divide and rule, you know, yeah. and fit everyone into categories. And that, unfortunately, has sort of continued. So if you, if, if, if you go to, um, if you go to India and you, you know, if, and, 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 and you want to, like, like, often what I will do when I'm there, if I'm collecting and stuff, I'll often have ended up with more charis or more ganja than I can smoke, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> terrible problem to have, you know. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, like, so like, you know. If, Is that still I... a first world problem when you're out there? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I felt <laughs> bad as soon as it left my mouth. <laughs> I mean, I, but yeah, so, you know, and, and you don't want to go on the public transport or wander around with it. So, and, and anyway, it's just a good excuse to go and hang out at these shrines and places. Yeah, man. 
and um so yeah i'll often like sit and just have a smoke up with with some guys and and uh and um yeah like uh so you might you know these days often the the, the sadhus or you know babas whatever you want to call them they um they've often been forced to have like id cards and things that that and, and banned from entering some states so mostly your easiest place to hang out with and, and see uh, this type of thing we're discussing is like north india right? so when you go down into the south like kerala and places like it's i think they've sort of basically banned um, like wandering sadhus from even going into the state right? so there's a lot of efforts to control them because they're all they're seen as um some, I mean, this thing is, general, it's really hard to generalize because some, some of these characters have become these big successful businessmen and stuff. They've got brands and you'll see them all over the place on billboards and in shops, all these products and stuff, which incidentally is nothing against their creed or whatever. You can, um, like them institutional, like renunciant institutions have been engaged in business of various kinds since forever, like Buddhists and, and, and Muslims and, and Hindus, you know. But um, anyway, on the other hand, they're seen as, a, as a something that the state has to control and keep a lid on, you know, because they're an unpredictable force, you know. Mm. So for a long time, Hindu nationalists like the BJP, who run India now, were sort of getting pally with, with the Saudi orders. And then more recently, it's become clear, I think, that it's a more uncomfortable relationship because they've got quite different ideas from middle class urban Hindus about what Hinduism is all about. You know? So they have a much more radical uh, idea of it. You know, I mean, going back in time again, like the cannabis got into these cultures often as a substitute for alcohol. You know? So before cannabis, um, if, if they were using these, if they're having these meditative rites, kind of orgiastic rites often these rituals like the cowlers and stuff who are these extreme shiva yogis they would use alcohol and have these you know it's far out extreme kind of sacramental sex and meditation but using alcohol you know and that was to catalyze sort of they'd use alcohol to catalyze states of meditative bliss you know that was the main drug that was used and then cannabis came along and then you had some of them like the Shakta kind of Bengali Shakta mother goddess worshipping um, guys like there was Shaivas, Shakta Shaivas and there's no clear boundary but in Bengal they were like no cannabis is better right around the 13th 14th century you see them start saying that in literature like cannabis is much better than alcohol it's much better for catalyzing these states of bliss and stuff but then the old school guys, kind of followers of Abhinav Gupta and these non-dualist Kashmiri Shaivas, were going, no, no, alcohol's better. We've been using alcohol forever. It's much better than cannabis. So, you know, you have this debate amongst the yogis about which is better, you know? And, um, uh, you know, so, but all this stuff I'm talking about, like the kind of Kaula orgies and, these things they're all illegal in places where you might conceivably have them so in bengal it's explicitly banned you know no 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 mass uh, orgiastic cannabis use 
It's naughty. <laughs> you say it's it like fucking that. crazy <laughs> that they had to write a law about it. Like, you know what? These guys having the fucking cannabis orgies, we got to sort <laughs> them out. <laughs> None of that. None of that. It's not proper. That's fucking cool, though. Like, it, you, I mean, you see signs that say, do not touch hot. Like, <laughs> some, some dickhead burn himself. But to see a law, no cannabis orgies. Like, I, mean, I, I, slightly, I slightly twisted it, but like the... The rituals they have at which they would use cannabis are explicitly banned. And I'm, they still do, of course, of course, but they, they, they're, they're a pretty murky bit of Bengali culture. But I mean, the name for cannabis in, in, in Bengal, like uh, bang, is, 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 is what you'd normally call. Bang is like a collective word for any, for just cannabis, but it just means, yeah, just meaning cannabis. But also it's the, the rough and the coarse kind of it, like the crappiest form of it. In, in, in Western terms, you know, leafy, leafy bud, basically bits. Of, it should just be leaf on it, but you get you'll get bud mixed up in it. But that you can buy from government licensed shops in many states and stuff. But anyway, in in Bengal, city is the word for, most often used for bun. So if you remember, I was going on about the city mulika. Like city means magic power or spiritual accomplishment. So the name, the main word for bung in Bengal on the on the legislation and stuff is always city. So it shows you how deeply connected <clears throat> the culture of cannabis use is to this kind of yogic use of it. Even though the yogis themselves in in Bengali culture, like Bengali culture, posh Bengalis are as they make. I mean, they're like even more uptight than posh English people, you know. <laughs> but you know, within Bengal, you've got like. Um, you know, the yogic culture is a very, very big part of the culture, but it's, it's, it's a very contested sort of part of the culture. Some people are into it. Some people regard it as outrageous. You know, some people trust these yogis and revere them. Other people regard them as just riffraff, you know? So it's, it's, it's a kind of a, you know, it's like cannabis culture everywhere. Some people are into it. Some people think it's terrible. It's just the way it is, you know? But again, very hybrid culture, the Bengali, um, the, the, the kind of cultures that you find the um, cannabis use in, you know, hugely influenced by Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. No clear divide at all. Although if you go into Bengal these days, it, it all seems much more Muslim just because of how politics has gone there. Um, but yeah, you, know, you have these guys, the bowels, they're called the minstrels basically they go around singing songs and teaching and, sing, and singing these spiritual songs playing musical instruments often very into cannabis like Bob Dylan and people were quite inspired by them um, and they um, have all kinds of naughty sex stuff they get up to as well sexual rituals and things uh, we did actually have a question in chat before I lose it um, would Bang Lassie be from Hindi, from the area that you're kind of talking about? Where... Yeah, yeah, Bang, yeah, some Bang is some, um, yeah, so that's just yogurt with, um, yeah, with, with, with Bang mixed into it. You know, of course, you have to heat up the cannabis first. So you can, you can if you go to big pilgrimage places like the big Shiva city, Varanasi, and if you go to Rajasthan in the northwest near Pakistan, over in the Far East and Orissa, you can buy Bangladeshis from a government licensed shop have been able to since since it's never been illegal in those bits, you know, even though it was banned in, in you know, the legislation 
allows for the state to, to have a government licensed um, production and, and sale of it. So, you know, there's shops all around cities where you can go and buy Bangarasi and drink it and legally, drink it totally legally. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's all, and you can buy um, all kinds of different preparations from it. And in practice, you know, if you go to the shops in Varanasi or whatever, there's going to be someone just around the corner, maybe even in the shop itself, where you can get ganja, charas, probably even opium. Um, if not in the shop itself, then someone right next door is going to have it for you. Somebody outside who comes up to you once you order the bang inside. Yeah, well, I mean, so... Um, I forget the name of the big roundabout, but if you're in Varanasi on the Ganges River, you know, if you're just on the main kind of gap, which is the steps going down to the water, if you just walk back from there, in, away from the river, the first roundabout you hit is just surrounded by shops selling Tandai and Banglasi, all kinds of different uh, preparations of cannabis, basically, that you can drink or eat. You've got to be a bit careful because the water that they're going to be using is not necessarily clean, but you can buy it yourself, you can buy the bun yourself and make it yourself, or you can buy biscuits and stuff that have been baked with it in, in various shops. And like I say, there's bound to be someone, you can have these different mixtures like majum, which is like going to be like a blend of, <laughs> I think it can be like quite a bunch of different things, but you could, you can ask them, they basically will have different grades of it, like from nice, nice little sparkly buzz to totally brains you <laughs> and it can have opium in it as well and, and um, different grades of ganja in it and stuff so um, it can be really strong you know. but, it's, um, it's probably worth saying opium's even still considered well it's used as considered medicinal in these kind of places isn't it like uh, it's not necessarily so abused as the western culture sees it it's so like there's a kind of way of using cannabis and opium that i mean there's there's, there's the whole spectrum from like hardcore junkie fuck up on the street smoking heroin these days you know and doing pharmaceuticals to to the sort of there's a whole spectrum from that to a whole other kind of use that westerners don't really have a conceptual category for these days it's only because i heard greed steve talking about his personal use of it and it kind of changed my view on just the potential use of plant medicines in general like they they're ripe for abuse but that doesn't mean everybody's abusing oh absolutely yeah yeah so so what there is is basically like what you'd call tonic tonic use right so in the sense that and this is when talking cannabis and endocrine mm-hmm. so in the sense that like for example like a lot of people there they're not they're not getting proper nourishment from like enough calories off in 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 india for example so and they're doing hard laboring jobs dragging people around in a, in a ritual you know carrying huge hessian sacks of crap up and down railway platforms from 12 hours a day 14 hours a day seven days a week you know and not getting what we would regard as a sufficient diet so they, they will be using not very good quality ganja and not very good quality opium just to fucking take the edge off what is basically a brutal existence by our standards. And, and, and so that's sort of what you'd call like tonic use. And, and you get that amongst sadhus as well because they're just walking around, sleeping out in the cold often under a blanket. And, um, and, and essentially they're not, 
what, what a lot of people have confused as a spiritual use smoking chillums. Smoking chillums is not uh, is not um, got any kind of real um, with tobacco in it. It's not got any 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 spiritual sanction at all. It's not you don't find that in the Matsendra Sangata or whatever. It's this is basically mostly just a habitual use, but also kind of what you call tonic use. It's more like taking the edge off hunger or sexual desire. I'd often use it to to to, to take to to tamp, tamp down sexual desire rather than get horny, which is probably what we more often associate smoking some weed with. You know? Often it's used for the reverse of that. And so, you know, like opium as well. You, 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 eat, you don't smoke it in India mostly. It's eaten or it's drunk as like a post, which is like a poppy head. So you make some tea, have that in the morning just at the start of the day. And <laughs> seriously, and, and in Rajasthan, for example, you go to Jaisalmer or somewhere, and have to like 80% of the countryside basically are addicted to, to drinking opium, what we call opium tea, where it's, you know, post, it's like poppy heads, just boil it up with milk or whatever. And you have that like seven o'clock in the morning before you go out to work in the field. So, you know, that's mostly the main sort of social use of it. It's not got any real spiritual aspect to it, particularly. It's just about making life pleasant. Absolutely. I suppose that, again, is what kind of breeder Steve mentioned before. Like when cannabis doesn't take the edge off an injury or something that he was, I can't remember the specific ailment, but I think it was a back pain. Um, if cannabis Absolutely. didn't do it, then opium did. Right. Yeah, I mean, cannabis isn't exactly a painkiller. It's sort of psychologically a painkiller, mostly in most cases, as far as I know. It, it, it's essentially where just like moving your mind away from constantly being aware of something but putting you in a different I, I think it's a painkiller in the sense it's analgesic I'm not, I'm not sure it's a strictly speaking I mean I haven't got the papers with me but as far as I know it's sort of it the way it's the way it's dealing with pain anyway I don't know if yeah. but I mean <laughs> but the the you know like in terms of what you're asking yeah it's like there's a sort of what we would call kind of medicinal use, I guess, is is, is a very well established thing, like in these places, and 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 in, but the sitting around, hitting chillums, in 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 a circle, it, there are, contexts, where that's done in a spiritual way. So like, often not by renunciants. This is we're talking about like householders, people with families, sit around in a, in, a, in a city like Kathmandu. And, and um, sing like bhajans and songs, spiritual songs, and there'll be a chillum going around like that. But it's sort of social mixed with spiritual. It's not, but it's not introverted. You know, it's not about going into some deep meditation state or something. It, it, it's a, it's a bit of both. You know, um, that's a that's a well-established traditional thing. Um, but if you turned up and were like just going heavily out of chillum and just like getting getting out of your head on properly fucked up stone that would be a breach of etiquette you know you're not meant to be like losing control of yourself as well you know it's like this is kind of respectable smoking you know what i mean there's there's, there's these categories so i've got and a glass of wine with dinner but... more like that yeah but i mean it's, it is spiritual because you're singing spiritual songs you know about shiva and krishna and stuff you know but like for example, I know I know a Nepali guy who 
was in the in the 70s and 80s a, a big big stoner when he was young you know when he was hanging out with hippies and stuff and, in in Kathmandu and he'd go along to these bhajans at, at like night in, in Kathmandu and they'd tell him to get lost you know because he was a he was a young guy who they knew was hanging out in the bazaars smoking chillums in public places with like westerners in a way that they considered to just be not respectable behavior you know but now he's 50 60 years old he'll go along and they'll welcome him and, and they'll give him a seat and they'll bring him food and, and, and you know children will pass around or whatever because now he's a he's an old man and he's a respectable figure you know he's got he works for ngos and stuff you know? he knows the etiquette yeah, which is more that he's more that he's now a figure with respect, whereas before he was like they considered him a bum, you know, because he was hanging yeah. out with hippies in, in the street and getting stoned in public, which is not is not kosher, you know. Um, so that, you know, there's all kinds of rules and regulate rules and unwritten regulations, as it were, like unwritten rules of, of social etiquette around cannabis use. It has a place that Westerners don't often get the subtlety of they they think oh right yeah i'll just spark up here in the middle of the shop or in the restaurant or in the bazaar you know and and it's not that's not you know that's that's missing a lot of the kind of subtleties of the places the place and time and the place and culture it's cultural and obviously you have to live in these places and like you said um, with taking the edge off of uh, a certain uh, miserable existence or just what is an everyday life in some places it's not saying that westerners you know would really understand and that so i do totally get that i was watching a documentary the other day um different type of drug in a different part of the world but very similar story there it's just used because of you know what, what the daily life is there and people don't understand it we look at it from the outside you, know, you might see the states of people getting on certain substances and just being dirty, but there's often a story to it or a cultural etiquette to it that we just don't understand as Western people, or not just Western. I mean, other other cultures around them would not understand. So yeah, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I totally get that. Yeah, you're right to pick up on that because I keep saying Western just because in my mind that's the sort of it's, yeah, it's no, it, that's the way we look at it from here. So yeah, it's a lazy way of saying modern almost. Yeah, it is just yeah. a modern perspective, isn't it? Outside the perspective, modern, yeah, is, is different ways of, I mean, yeah, you could use all those sort of categories, but it, I mean, I, I guess in my mind is always, is, is always this, the, the sort of very, very shorthand ideas that people have, like, you know, shiver, cannabis, okay, right? But it's much more nuanced than that. You know, I remember, like, trying to interview some very, like, upper class, upper caste Brahmins in Varanasi, right outside the, where I was talking to these guys. I was trying to interview them about cannabis culture because they were associated with this university in Varanasi, and I wanted to get like their perspective on it. Like right outside the door, you know, there's you know I was talking about those shops like Tandai shops and Bangladeshi mm. shops and all that. That's all going on right outside. You know, we're in the city of Shiva Varanasi, you know, and I'm like, so you know, is this cannabis is all part of the Shiva culture thing, right? And he's like, just looks at me like I'm a dog, you know. It's just like, no, <laughs> no, it's not. That's just a countryside thing for countryside people. It's nothing to do with shiver at all, you know. Mm. And so, I mean, you know, from some people's perspective, it's just like it, it's not, you know. And 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 you've got to. I mean, there'll be people, you know, when 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 outsiders, Westerners, whatever, Japanese, whatever, they might be roll in 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 into these places like Varanasi and just have these preconceptions. They, they don't realize they're treading on people's feet. You know what I mean? So yeah, I just, I've... it's worth putting out there just. To, to see there's a bit more subtlety to it. 
I often get, I've never been to these places, it's a bit of an ignorant statement in itself, but there's almost an ignorance to it. I don't know, with that. again, Hebe Trail, I don't know much about that, and this is why I love talking to you, but people from, you know, certain areas of the world turning up in these places just to try and experience a lifestyle for a week, to try and, I could imagine that's treading on toes, you know, it's like someone turning up at your house and wanting to tell you how to cook your Sunday roast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For that one day, it's going to piss you off because that's the way I've cooked, my family's cooked that roast that way, it's, it's nice, but it's not touristy. And it's, that's probably the best word for it. It isn't touristy. It's a lifestyle for many people. But unless you really live it and really educate yourself with it, I'd imagine you're going to piss a lot of people off just turning yeah. up to basically get stoned in these certain places. Thinking that your Sunday roast part of isn't it. the same as mine, man. That, that's so what it's, I'm saying, it's as divisive talking about where you when you put the gravy on as if... Oh, no, I know that, but we all cook Sunday <laughs> no, roast that's, that's what I mean. Like, over there... It, it's it, got to be still as divisive in the... In the homeland, of, of course things like but you can, everyone's going to have their nuance. I get this touristy image sometimes of people that are probably in their head that just want to that they live that lifestyle, but they live it in Kensington, in 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 wherever they are in in whichever in the world. But they live they live that lifestyle there, but they're not living that lifestyle as a cultural. The culture has been for thousands of years, as we're talking about. And people turn them up sometimes. I can imagine, unless you really educate yourself. I'm like talking to Angus. I mean, Angus, the information that, you, honestly, I reckon you could do a thousand of these and not repeat yourself because you genuinely <laughs> educate yourself, though, mate. And, and you genuinely try to... Yeah, you're right. You know, I you know what I'm on. saying, though? I'm not, I'm not trying to put it, put down certain people. I, 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 I'm not going to be words sometimes, but that touristy, I don't, I know they're not tourists, but touristy aspect of people turning up in these, these cultures, you know, out in the outback, not outback, but in these rural areas, I can imagine that is treading on toes, and it's, it would stop me going yeah, there and doing. Very, it. very often is, unfortunately. I mean, like, I mean, I'm, I'm sounding. The thing is, I'm an outsider as well, right? Everything mm. I'm saying to you is from an outside perspective. I'm. I, but you educate uh, yourself thoroughly. Yeah, I, it comes across. I do. I do. You know, and I, and and I've, I mean, you know, I've I've, I've hung out with like uh, sadhus and sannyasis you know spent a lot of time with them like guys like who who's because you know my, my grasp of the languages isn't good enough and often these studies guys they won't speak good english at all if, if at all you know but i've hung out with guys who who did you know who wanted to teach me stuff and spend a bit of time you know i, I try and approach it with humility and learn stuff when i'm there you know that's but that, that i can say you know to blow my own trumpet or whatever but the thing you're saying with the sunday roast i think actually a good analogy would be turning up to Sunday church before the Sunday yes. work, grabbing the sacrament bottle and just chugging down the entire fucking bottle of yeah, wine. To experience going, the wine is, a, wine is the Christian thing, right? And then just staggering <laughs> around, then turning up at Sunday lunch and drinking all the fucking booze of, in, 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 in the cupboards. Yeah, going, no, wine's a Western perfect. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something like that, you know, because that's essentially what often happens. I, you know, I've done. I've, I spent a lot of time stoned out of my mind, wandering around in in the bazaars. But you know, if, if if you're if you're a sensitive enough person, you notice the looks you're getting, and you notice the attitude towards you, and and, and, and you get a very very different treatment if you turn up not behaving like that. Yeah, that's you said um, that spot on, mate. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, go on, sorry. almost just to say, it's almost an entitlement. I think in my head, the way that I'm envisioning yeah, yeah. it, it's just I'm here to experience this lifestyle. <laughs> Absolutely. But if you go there, not with the entitlement to just be grateful for experience, I'd imagine like we in my head, that's what you're doing, as opposed to not everyone, but just the image in my head that I get sometimes of where people are talking about, it, and I'm thinking you, you sort of 
forcing yourself into that. I think the thing is, as well, into that experience. The best way to travel is to, despite all the information and sort of nerdy offloading of information I'm doing, despite everything that I've said, I think the best thing I would say for me, you know, and the thing that people who do spend a lot of time traveling like me, what we long for is to go back to the first times. You know, I heard the people who made the Lonely Planet guides, you know, they went back to Afghanistan when it was still possible and they were walking around and they're saying, you know, it's, it's amazing to be back here, but God, I wish I could go back to the first time I was here and just be all fresh, you know, yeah, just yeah. really fresh, no preconceptions, not even having the preconceptions about the spiritual side because they went through in like 1965 before even people were even talking about yogis and stuff. And, and uh, you know, just to go through with that freshness of not having any preconceptions at all, that's the best thing. And that's when you, you, you often behave the best as well because you're not bringing any any ideas about oh this 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 person's that and this person's that you know? that's the that's the thing I wish I could do but you know next life I guess <laughs> um, you know anyway but yeah I mean you know it it's it's um cannabis is good for that in a way actually because it can just sort of um put you into that you know. You're, you're, you're tired, you're grumpy, you've had enough, you're starting to get irritated with all the hassle and bustle, you're just knackered like walking around, been walking around so long and then you just sit down, have a smoke, suddenly everything's just vibrant and alive again, you know? Yeah, 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 I've often said, with just my experiences, especially smoking hash, I wouldn't smoke like hash, but that's sort of what it is, it, is, it makes everything a little bit more vivid, a little bit more understandable. I don't know. It's, I imagine everyone's different, but what you just said there just sort of resonated with me because I reckon some of the old stuff's really, really good for that. You know, having spent yeah. like uh, I've been back in the UK for a while now, and 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 and, and I, had, I had some stuff I did for myself, and then stuff from from some contacts who grow really, really well, and it was all beautifully done, but none of it was, you know, and I'm. I'm None of it was quite taking me to that place that was what I really smoked for, you know, that you'd get from some like hand rub charis from, well, I'm not even so hot on the Pirati and Milana stuff because it's not got the same zing. You can go to other bits of the mountains that are not so famous, really kind of rustic sort of village stuff that's not so squidgy and sticky necessarily, but has that really sort of vibrant edge to it. I don't think it's just a psychological thing, you know, it's something that's in something's in that stuff that is not in other things and that's the best i think for me like that kind of mountain charis and some really nice ganja just really sort of sunshiny sort of buzz you can yeah. still get really high on it but it's not not going to mess you up necessarily but it it to, to have that effect that i these days as i'm getting to be middle-aged that i look for more often you know it's it's, it's it just uh, to, to give you a bit of inspiration you know yeah, bit, yeah. A bit luminous and chills you out a bit as well. You know, it's perfect if you're in a high stress situation where you don't have, it's all right to be stoned, but you're like in some crazy bazaar or whatever, just people pushing into you and stuff. You just go with it. It's just like, it's just, it's just happening. It's just what it is. Um, that, that, that is, you know, that, um, there's, there's something, there's something in a lot of that old stuff that is, uh, it's in, I'm sure it's in the plant. It's not just an association. I've seen it enough times when I've had it in the UK with me and, and, and been in, you know, 
South London or whatever and smoked it and suddenly you know grey grey day in February suddenly it's just alive you know yeah yeah <clears throat> you know, I associate that with the old the old days of hash no it, it's not yeah. so far you know what I mean you used to be able to get a much higher quality of hash here and what you're saying they're not about the squidgy stuff but I don't know more the it almost would have looked like old hash to someone if you put like a nice ball of squidgy black in someone's hand and this other stuff. But I know exactly what you mean. I think I've never experienced it, you know, from where you've been, but I, I think I understand what you're saying there. It was much more of it around 20 odd years ago. It was still, it was still around, you know, and, and mm. mates of mine still had it in, in, in London even even 10 years ago, but people just don't bother anymore. It's just not nice. if, if people do have it, they don't they don't have it to sell, you know? No, yeah, it's, that's exactly it. And, and and some of the squidgy stuff can be really good. I mean, fuck, I've had amazing, amazing, like, um, sieved hash from uh, Nepal, you know? Like, uh, people were sieving it, I think, because of Westerners. I don't think it was something that's ever been much of a traditional thing in Nepal. It's mostly hand-rubbed, but really, really good stuff. That, like, you had to keep it in, like, thick, like, kind of baler plastic, because if you put, like, anything thinner than that on it, it would just wouldn't you couldn't even tear it off you know the oil was just like seeping out around the edges of it had great stuff like that but the just for the for the experiential side of it like the the rougher like rustic stuff just done the old way that they normally do it just like you know really care, care carelessly sort of hand rubbing it bits of bits of calyx uh, bits of calyx and bract kind of coming off into the hatch and bits of beef even sometimes and even you find like tiny little bits of of, of broken sort of small white seeds in there sometimes you know not not like a connoisseur quality hand rubbed charis just what they do for themselves because they, they don't want to sit around spending all fucking day to make five grams you know so um you know that that often has the best um the best buzz sometimes i, I you know exactly why i don't know but um it's also a lot easier to smoke in a pipe, you know, because that really, really sticky hash, you put it in the pipe and you eat it and it just turns to liquid and just goes down the tube, you know? Yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas this stuff, you, you can just burn it almost like you're smoking some gander or something. Um, I think yeah. there's a lot to what you're saying there, though, man. Like, even with trimming old, well, I won't even say older strains, trimming some strains, you're like, there's just no flavour if I take off all the sugar leaf. And... The rough and ready stuff just goes path and really knocks you with the turps and the high. I don't know. Yeah. There's really something about rough and ready that's fucking so much better than Instagram appeal. There's so there's so much stuff in the plants that we don't even know about yet. You know, because everyone knows about all the sort of like aromatic terpenes, cannabinoids. Everyone talks about that, but there's probably another like three thousand, quite most five thousand maybe phytochemicals in there. There, there is even in wheat, you know. And God knows, like I remember like having a bit of like like some haze haze stuff with me one time and uh it was just like leaf off the plants you know and then i had some like thai it was lao like lao thai whatever ganja and i just thought oh i'll just fucking bung the bits of haze leaf in there and i smoked it and it was like i just smoked some haze i was like you know like properly kind of like prangy you know in a way that i would never be off just smoking like some Thai stuff, you know, that's like much more flashy type to compare Thai can do that to you actually too. But it, it there's something that's in the what I'm saying is seemed to me there's something that was the haze plant was making, even just the like um leaf off the bud, you know, was had something in it that was creating that like speedy sort of buzz, you know. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so we don't. I just yeah, we don't. We don't. We don't know. There's much more that we don't know than we do know. That interesting years to come. I mean, really, especially now with the legality and the research that's going into it, and the money that's going into that research. I mean, but I definitely believe that there's more to the whole plant than, um, yeah, or uh, even what you're saying. And I think that that's definitely with some of the older hashes. That's definitely more prevalent. And just uh, I think the flavors as well. Yeah, with that more yeah. gritty, gritty flavor to it. I mean, we all love that pure creamy hash, but the more gritty, almost I can't think of another word to explain. It's only dirty, man. When, dirty, when I talk gritty. about filthy strains and stuff being like fucking <laughs> dirty nappy, it sounds nasty, but it brings out that like younger side to you when it was actual good ganja. It wasn't just yeah, always yeah. chasing another fucking twenty minute smoke. So I always say this, but I speak to people and. Few people of late have said that they're growing these old genetics and they're getting the experiences. They remember, you know, when they first started smoking 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's mad, you know, but they're growing these old strains. I've been yeah. shouting about old school for a long time. I'm probably not even thinking about the old school they're talking about, but you know what I mean? It's, it, there's, there's something we're missing almost sometimes these days, I think. One of, one of, one of, I, like I'm, uh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to hype my stuff too much but just to say like um we, we've been resurrecting like uh, stuff from freezers that we got like in in nice. the dam in the early you know, 1990 one of one, one of our gang like was over there then buying stuff and, and genuinely i can't genuinely we like the the um the the, the packaging you know it was like um just like test tubes like you know with a cork in it you know right. and, and and he was buying it off these guys who, who were going around like the cafes and bars and stuff you know just just started a seed bank or whatever and this is like 1990 we're talking about and bunged it all in the freezer lost the actual like bit of card that came with it the kind of menu explaining what it was but it had the names on them anyway you know resurrecting the stuff from 1990 and uh, nice, we called it like um Afghan, Afghan 90, like Afghan, like in the Dutch way, they pronounce it with the two A's, anyway, Afghan 90, whatever, but that's what it was written on the thing, you know? Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, I was trying some, of, trying some of the buds from that, and there was a few different, like, variations in it. There was one, like, which was more lime-tasting, and one really earthy one, but genuinely, like, so, hand on my heart, exactly what you're saying, like, this was the type of buzz you just don't get from the stuff these days. Yeah. Like, the... the you know the plant. The plants you've got to you've got to grow them like um this because 1990 they can't have been through that many generations from the original stuff from Afghanistan. You know? So you, you've got to like a couple of people have been growing them and have had a, like overfed them or burned them with the lights and they've popped some bananas on them. You know, mm. but so you've got to you've got to be careful with it. Like there's some downsides to them, but once someone's taken a bit of time to clean them up, we'll be doing that over the next few years. Like I say, like the the, the buzz off it was lovely, you know, I'm, 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 it's exactly what I look for um, when, I'm, when, when I'm smoking, you know, I, I want, like, feel good, euphoric. It's not that complete batter, is it? It's not that 30% THC in brackets, big brackets, but it's not that just glue me to the floor or I'm sitting there shaking, you know, after, yeah. it's, it's that whole experience. I, li I, li I like, yeah. Like in totally to another place, yeah. um, to get out of myself as yeah. if, if I can. But I don't. I definitely don't 
I, like I want to be there in the experience. I don't want to be like yes, part mate, of myself, yes. like, you know, barely conscious, wake up at three o'clock in the morning covered in drool. Oh, where am I? You know? I mean, I don't mind a bit of that sometimes. There's <laughs> 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 time and a place for everything. Like, oh, of course. But, yeah. but, but in general, that's not going to be my go-to smoke, you know, like not your Monday morning smoke. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 11, 11 a.m., you know, Wednesday morning wank smoke, maybe. But... <laughs> <laughs> you got a, you got a camera in my gaff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, beep it was just said. Um, people beep a bag of puna, and that's what I've been shouting about for a long time. Uneducated to shouting about, but for a long time it was bred for big plants that were high THC because that was the numbers that were on these packets. That's what was sold. Someone looks at a seed packet, 99% of the time, no, not so much. I mean, these days people are definitely more connoisseurs. There's definitely that, uh, I don't know, craft side to it. And that's a really good thing that's happening. For a long time, it was just, I want big buds. I want the highest THC. No one could test the THC, but the package said it's 30% and it's going to give me a kilo per 1.2 meter. No one ever got anything near that, but that's sold. And yeah. I think selectively breeding down that route for a long time, like you said, by the nineties, that wasn't the case. We spoke to a, a Dutch breeder when these interviews, and he was telling us that for a long time, even in the Dutch community, there was only a handful of genetics that were being mixed and, and bred. Yeah, and it exploded. I mean, I don't know the years involved. He didn't give us the years involved. But I would imagine exactly what you're saying. You know, there would have been your widows and your AKs and stuff that would have been crossed, and these other ones would have been made. But it was still a small group of genetics that were being swapped at breeders' meets and between breeders. Yeah, very different. People now. would like work at you know wherever. I, I mean, with Neville or someone, and then they'd maybe yeah. go off and do their own thing, take a bunch of stuff with them. And, and yeah. anyway, a lot of the you know, I mean, the, but yeah, like you say, I mean, it, it's it's um, it's there's a surprisingly small number of things that were actually the building blocks of uh, of so what the mess we have today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's. A, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a fucking disaster, really. Like in, yeah. in long term, that everything's got so fucking homogenized because it's, it's, it's a one way street, you know. Um, to some extent, anyway. I mean, it's there, there's you can kind of you can kind of go back a bit, but essentially, it's a one way street once you've mixed it all up. It's, of course, it is. But respect you for doing what you're doing. I mean, I'd definitely, definitely be into trying that '90s Afghan, even if it is a bit problematic you know but I just said you're going to iron that over the coming years but I think that's the way honestly I, that's the way I see it going with hobbyists I mean you can't we don't we don't talk to commercial growers we're hobbyists in the forum and that but that's definitely the way I see it going more and more people seem to be jumping back to old tri-tested genetics yeah seems to be the way the movement is going I and mean, obviously what you're talking about is well before tri-tested genetics that we're talking about but you know what I mean we've got going like, down that route I mean I'm just I'm getting you saying this as much as I don't know if people are interested. I think we've got like a super skunk from back then, like talking about uh, 90 uh, and Master, Master Kush. We've already already got out. This, uh, um, and 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 people who I forget who it was exactly, but again, someone who was there in the Amsterdam scene, which was a very small scene, really, in the scheme of things, back in the late 80s and early 90s. And he said, "Yeah, that's." It. He was looking at the photos we've got, and he said, "That's exactly what the Master Kush." look like that they were playing with you know had the, the pistols and the coloration uh, whatever you call the stigmas and the coloration were all exactly how he remembered it so you know and, and I, i've got no you know no no doubt in my mind at all these are what they are you know but for, 
some people were like, he's really what you're saying, and he's like really original 1990 genetics. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyone who anyone who knows them will will see it. The Afghan 90 is a bit of a mystery, like um, in the sense that it's it's blatantly not the um, Mel Frank's, um, you know, um, uh, what's they, what they fucking call it? Afghani Afghani number one, right? Yeah. It's not that. Thank fuck, because I'm not a fan of that stuff. It's you know, then a lot of people complain about it having like quite a negative buzz. What has what has been done to it now? Like, I think when Mel Frank had it originally in in the states, it was a different beast, you know. But a, a lot of breeding was done on it. Like, I've heard people say that um, uh, skunk man, whatever you want to call him. Who, who, who did a lot of work with it in Holland, allegedly, and I'm just very much allegedly, he didn't even bother used to smoke, like bother smoking it when he was breeding with it. He would just fucking select like the, the one with the biggest resin, big and biggest yield. Yeah. And the people, so, and I think that might be from Neville, you know, and there's maybe some sort of bitching going on, I don't know, but you know, like uh, that, that, it, that, that ex- might explain why it's, Famously, not a particularly pleasant smoke often. If you, but anyway, but this 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 Afghan is not like that. You know, it's totally the opposite. I was really surprised to smoke it because it was just like, is this really happening? Oh, it is. Like, I'm really enjoying myself. That <laughs> seems to be glued to the sofa, and just like semi-conscious. Yeah, it's kind of interesting you say that about skunk one because uh, sorry, Afghan, Afghan, Afghan one. one. Yeah. which was like part of skunk one's breeding if i remember rightly but i definitely yeah. get that with like the original exodus cheese now it is like if i smoke it for a couple of days i kind of go into a deep well of like man everything is shit like it's a yeah. super depressing strain yeah 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 a lot of people stop smoking because of that it's the thing like my generation like i was i'm on the cusp of like when you know when, when i was when i was grew up smoking we were smoking like and it, it, good like good traditional stuff I would get like Swazi red and and like occasionally get some decent Thai brick and you know like Nepali charis if I was lucky it was just coming from like friends parents and stuff you know that kind of stuff would be what I would think of like yippee you know if I saw that was around but then often like we'd be smoking skunk and things and like parents of friends that were stoners and stuff who were like hippie trail hippie sort of people they'd be like, oh, fucking don't smoke that stuff. It's shit and stuff. And we'd all be really excited because we've never seen, like, skunk stuff before, you know? Mm. And they'd be, like, running it down and things. After a while, we all started to realise, actually, maybe they've got a point because, like, once it became impossible to get your hands on old traditional stuff, passion, ganja and whatever, yeah. once it became impossible and it was all you had to smoke, if you weren't growing it for yourself, if you weren't like choosing things yourself and working out what you liked and you were stuck with just what you could buy through friends or whatever, often, yeah, it's exactly what you're describing. Like a lot of people I know just gave up smoking because they just simply weren't having a good experience with it, with what they could get their hands on and they didn't want the hassle and the risk of growing themselves, you know? So um, I can totally relate to that. I remember like coming back to the UK and just like not, not, not having anyone to get anything off and uh, getting like a taxi number, you know, buying some of that stuff, and I just fucking just give it to someone else after I tried to smoke some of it. It's like, just a bad experience, you know? 
And I, I, I don't know if I hadn't smoked for a long time, but I smoked recreationally for a long time. I was very lucky to uh, have friends or family that would be into the old hash scene. Yeah. And I stopped for a long time and I, I started having sleep problems. I started, I thought, well, I'm smoking. I'm taking these tablets and just making me zombified. And mm-hmm. I'd had that sort of going on when I start. I first come back into that, I don't know, maybe seven, ten years later, started smoking again. It was, I had that. It really put me off. I mean, yeah. I almost like that fear, that fear, people put it fear weed as a joke, but that's sort of what happened. And I thought, I'm just not used to smoking. But I think uh, that may well have been it because it was just sort of, I don't know, just that the, 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 I think the problem was. There was hobbyist growers, not like there is now. I mean, it's a lot more accepted. Before, you could go away for it, over it. Before, people that were buying these seeds were buying them probably to grow and sell. You know, that, that yeah, was yeah. Long, for a long time. So, 100% this kind of stuff I'm, I was complaining about is 100% that sort of stuff you smell around on the streets. And stuff. Anyway, I talked over yeah. Sorry. No, sorry. no, no, you're fine, mate. You're fine. Yeah. That, that's, that, I think, I remember, like, it took me a little while to get back into smoking at night. To, to try just for sleep. Because, like, the first few times, I was sort of sitting there fragging out, like, is that a noise now? Stupidly, but I mean, I've sort of laughed at myself after 20 minutes, but I'm just fraggling out because I haven't smoked for a long time. But I was a heavy stoner and I, I never got that before mm. as, as a recreational, but then it was more medical, that side of it. But that now you've said that, it's sort of hitting, you know, hitting a note with me because I'm thinking that probably was what it was. It wasn't the same week. It was, thing- it was shit, basically, or it didn't have that full effect. It was more geared to just make you fraggle out a bit, man. I think the other thing you were saying, though, was that after a couple of days of smoking that um exit of cheese then you started to get like basically depressed so i had the opposite of exodus exodus really put me to sleep so i ended up growing that for a long time but jim i don't like it yeah Yeah. well i can enjoy the flavor it just makes my body warm and then makes yeah after a few days i end up just fucking hating the world like Mm. everything slowly gets darker almost maybe that's why it was good for sleep because i only only smoked for many years just to, just for sleep and I'd, and that's what it was i would just put myself asleep rather than take all these these medications i've been given and that i reckon um, seemed to glue me to the floor man yeah i have a i have a, I have a friend with um chronic um migraines you know yeah and uh he ends up he's basically after years and years of being swapped through all kinds of different medications has just come back to smoking because it, it's the only thing that really he can that, that helps and you can actually function like a normal human being on compared to the sort of stuff they had him on for his migraines. So, I mean, um, you know, I think, but I think um, with the sleep thing, I personally, I reckon hash is the best as long as it's, as long as it's good hash and it's strong enough is you get the, I find that you can wake up feeling relatively fresh and you don't have those sort of, um, after effects of like like you were talking about with maybe feeling depressed or just negative feelings anxious or whatever that you know all kinds of that 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 end of the things that i think you get much more with just very high thc plants especially ones that have got that kind of afghani one heritage in there whatever the whatever it is that's in there whether it's turps or whatever the sort of um you know dirty sort of i mean dirty in a negative way sort of dirty effect like the that put a lot of people off smoking basically who used to smoke um you know when 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 you could still get access to the traditional imported stuff even though in the uk most of it wasn't up as much it's still an approximation of you know something really good 
Yeah. Very sweet you said there. It was, it was the hash that I was after, but it just wasn't around anymore. When I started yeah, trying yeah. to get it again, and that's why I ended up with these. I remember asking for an eighth, and the, and the person, this person that I used to get it off was still doing it, and he turned up with his bag, and it was like, that ain't an eighth. He's like, that's what it is now. That's what 20 bucks, but what the fuck? <laughs> I'm going to start growing my own, and that's how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I remember when I was at school, and like, we go down to this, um, we go down to this, like, uh, they were like football hooligans, English Defence League or something, you know? Oh, it was the only place, you know, like walking up this, walking up to this flat and like knocking on the door and like practicing shit in my hand. And they like, like shove this stuff at us and it's like, oh, fucking hell. And it would just get worse and worse, you know, like this is, we're yeah. talking like 14, 15 years old, you know, like Moroccan hash just getting more and more cut with like whatever the fuck it was. Plastic that. bags in the end of thing. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, that, yeah. that, and then, you know, that, things that things looked up after that for about until like, I don't know, sometime around 2000 and then it just all vanished slowly over the first few years of that, in my experience. And like, like, still get, still had like Swazi, nice Swazi and like some other like nice West African stuff. And then now and then, get some nice hash but even the afghan hash was was bunk a lot of it but even the sort of things that stumped i i think it really depends who who you who you were getting it from but i hear yeah. really like good stuff about red steel and gold so but some of what i saw was garbage it had just been not garbage it was switching it looked nice red seal and gold seal like with all the stamps gold stamps on it and stuff but it's not what you see if you go over to of Africa. course not no yeah. i mean you spoke to me off Laura and he was saying he's, he's He's travelled like, not similarly to what I'd say. He goes over to the cultures and he's talking about um, really good. Anyone in chat that hasn't listened to Flowers in chat now, but it was honestly one of my favourite um, interviews. I think with just a, a stoner that wasn't a company. It was just and his stories about. And he was saying like, you don't get that over here. The, the, the yeah. shit that the shit that's the shit shit is what ends up over here, and you will think it's brilliant. Yeah, going to these places and you know that the finest, highest grade. Just like yeah, man. I can imagine. I can imagine. I'd love yeah, to he, There was a guy who, um, he's dead now. He was an Afghan guy in uh, Peshawar. Um, he, um, in fact, like, right up on the, so where you're basically in Afghanistan, but it's Pakistan. And so you get all the, all, all the hash there. And like this, the, the, the Afghan hash I saw from him, like he had family up in the north where the best stuff comes from. And so he'd get it sent down to Kabul and then down to, to Pakistan and, and this was like real high grade North Afghan like they call it first first Garda and I'd never seen anything like that the first time I saw it you know this is proper like melt, melty as melty as anything but like not just that you know the effect of it was just like it was just right for someone like me anyway it's like luxurious you know yeah yeah, yeah. stone you feel like some kind of sultan or something just like lying on your couch like just perfect balance you know like not dr dreamy but strong you know but like really dreamy really relaxed that kind of thing i can really miss you know um but you have you know you can still make it yourself like uh but you know so it's quite a commitment to there are people i know who do it because they're customers of mine you know but people <laughs> grow a whole bunch of plants and just just to make that kind of stuff when of course that's a real you know when you could have grown that all as bud and grown something quite a commitment to to do that but if if, if i had the space i would you know, 
I'm not around long enough to do it in, in, in one place. But um, the uh, that that kind of thing, yeah, it's like uh, hopefully the Taliban won't annihilate the whole thing. Mm. I guess not. But uh, oh, they'll be enjoying it by then. <laughs> I wish they'd fucking start smoking it. Like you seen the videos of them on the trampoline and the bumper cars and stuff, man. It won't be long until they happen. <laughs> send it to me. <laughs> it, it's fucking hilarious, to be honest, man. They're like kids who have not seen fucking a, a lake before, fucking splashing around and shit. It's yeah. Oh, I, I thought know, you were talking about like mullahs jumping around on a on the trampoline. Yeah, like, genuinely, hundred percent. Oh, you were. Yeah, adult like full-grown adults with machine guns and shit, like giggling their pants off. Like, <laughs> this it is makes it very real. If I was, um, you know, president of America, you see, I just chip over like ten thousand Playboy bunnies and a whole bunch of trampolines. <laughs> <laughs> Sorted. That's Peace, it. Peace agreement done. After he played on the trampolines and spent two weeks with the Playboy bunnies in this hash. Then we talk, all right? And not before. That's <laughs> <laughs> my preconditions. <laughs> anyway, this, I shouldn't be making light of what is basically a fucking nightmare, but... Yeah, hey, man, if you can't anyway, joke about we, it. We talked about that for about... Well, we talked... I ranted about that for about 15 minutes before we... That's why it was a little late on. <laughs> <laughs> Good listening, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, it's yeah, it's it's, it's it, again, it's, it's you know, it's, it's it's as I was saying to you, it's a bit different. You 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 have contacts and you know people part of the world, but it's different because I feel almost an intruder talking about politics that I don't, I'm not into. But if you know and you you've been in these parts of the world, it's very different, very different. And I understand why you're so passionate about these things, as everyone should be. But I think you understand what I'm saying with that tourist analogy earlier. I don't understand it. I know what's right and wrong, but it's it's. it's if, if you have lived and you know these things, you know, I can understand the passion in you for it, man. I really can. And for yeah, it. I, I, I get what sets me off, basically, is I tend to, in, 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 when, I'm, when I'm on left my own devices, I don't walk around, like, you know, fretting and having deep thoughts about politics. What sets me off is when I see other people opinionate, opinionating about it, yes, getting on their soapbox, and, the, and I listen to the media, and, and it's just something I know enough about that I see how much bullshit is being talked and I see people getting pulled into it. And, and that's what frustrates me. That's, that's when I start going off of one. It's, you know, it's like, it's like if you know anything you know about, and, you know, growing cannabis, if you, know, if, if you know a bit about cannabis and then you see how, it's not as bad as it used to be, actually, but if you imagine, like, 15 years ago what the BBC was like, you know, yes. and, and you, you listen to them talking and you're like, fucking hell, did, do none of you have kids that smoke at school? Well, probably they do. And their kids think their parents are such cunts that they don't know, you know what I mean? Because you listen to them on, you know, on the BBC radio back then and you're just like, wow, if I didn't know about this, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. It sounds like the devil's work, you know? Yeah. Well, that's so what it was like that, to me. Yeah, anything like that. It's just, that's when that's when I go off. You know, it's, it's, exactly, it's exactly what I was saying. If you're educated in that, I don't mean just an educated, it's educated. I mean, if you understand yeah. and you you've been immersed into that is it yeah. anything yeah. in life any anything doesn't matter if it's if you're like mechanics growing weed politics then yeah definitely you know you, you and you, this is what i said to you sometimes the only thing you can do is talk about it because where else are people going to hear it you know so yeah 
there's a bit of a bit of that. I mean, I think if, if look at when I, when I, when I'm on social media as an element of preaching as to what I'm doing because I am trying to sort of because 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 you know. Have, no, not given a soapbox man you've got to make use of it and especially <laughs> well if yeah. you know something it's kind of ashamed to keep it to yourself like yeah well, i mean i genuinely i'm a bit worried you know like uh, I, I i i about the way the world's going now you know especially with you know this what has happened to afghanistan that is a product of, of, of you know, how to put it like a certain discourse about the world that has taken hold of liberals and republicans there's this big temptation to just turn their back on everything because they're, they're, they're feeling down on themselves and there's a sort of perfectionism to it. You know, if, if we can't turn Afghanistan into this sort of gender sensitive, you know, um, it's like replication of the most left-wing liberal bits of California, then we've failed and it's not worth it. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole kind of worms you can go into there, but that's this temptation to abandon everything. I, I'm, I've got no illusions about America, along with everyone else in the world, including Americans, have no illusions about America. We've all seen what a fucking basket case it is at the minute. But there's still better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Just believe me, you do not want the alternative. If, if, they, if they bugger off and leave everyone else to just fight it out, then what you're seeing in Afghanistan now well, if, if Afghanistan had tipped into civil war instead, that would be the level of mess that you'd have if if, uh, if they turn their back on, on the rest of us, you know? And that, that, that needs a hundred million different qualifications, so I should probably not even get started, but it, that basically is my take on it anyway. That's partly because of having worked in Taiwan and places, which wouldn't really exist were it not for America's willingness to spend all this treasure and blood on keeping the world safe you know yeah i mean that's a that's a you know keeping the world safe again fuck me i mean everyone knows what happened in iraq and afghanistan it's a, it's a fucking disaster but um you know that i mean just to just to say since we've gotten to it now like you know since 2016 americans basically haven't troops haven't been in combat operations there there was 2000 troops there they weren't in combat, combat operations. No one had died since 18 months ago. It was air support was, 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 was keeping the Taliban out of the cities. For reasons that I genuinely do not understand, Biden decided to pull the plug on that. And now look what's happened. 20 years, $3 trillion, thousands of Americans dead for nothing, for absolutely nothing. The entire thing was a fucking waste of time. And it just blows my mind. I do not understand what they thought they were doing. From my point of view, you know, not great. We can't get any more seeds from them anymore because anyone who goes around collecting is going to get killed. The guys who were helping us, you know, they, I don't even know if they got out of the country. They, they had all their mobile phones smashed at a checkpoint by the Taliban. They sent a message to let my mate know that's what happened and they've disappeared off the radar. Probably because if they get their phones caught again and seeds and having conversations like that, that's, that's curtains, you know? Uh. But that for me is bad in that sense. It's just bad that we can't get the original seeds out anymore to people. But that's just, that's not a big deal really in the scheme of things. Imagine the millions of people who were able to live an ordinary life there. And I hear all these people on Instagram saying like, "Oh well, we can't afford to lose any more American lives. We can't afford to um, we can't afford it to spend all the money." They weren't spending any money. There's been Americans in G Germany, Japan. 
South Korea since World War fucking two, basically. This was like, oh, I mean, again, I'm sounding like I'm like into war. I'm not into war. I'm talking from the perspective of someone who just thinks it would be nice if Afghans had something approximating the standards of lives and freedoms that we enjoy in countries like the UK. That's all I'm saying. I'm not into bombing people. I'm not into killing people. I would love the world to be a peaceful, paradisical heaven for everybody if it possibly could be, you know? But the reality is, American aircraft were keeping the Taliban out of the cities. They were keeping, they were making it possible for women to go to school, to have jobs, for kids to go to girls to go to school, you know, to go to university, to wear the clothes they want to wear, to be the people they want to be. You know? That's what the American presence was enabling. Now they were fucking it up for themselves because they also have the Western offshore system. So all the Taliban and all of Afghanistan's government, they were looting the fucking place. They were making money off the heroin, off some of them off the cannabis as well, off meth increasingly. And it was all going into Dubai, it was all going into the city of London through offshore shell companies and, and led offshore you know, trips that lawyers can do for you if you've got the money. So in fucking Delaware and places in America, this money now, you know, in the, in the offshore system. So with one hand, we're helping the Afghans rob them, you know, not the Afghans, we're helping this corrupt politician rob the country blind. With the other hand, we're bombing it to keep it safe, but it's never going to fix itself. As long as you've got drug prohibition and the offshore system, you know, that's a boot on the neck of every fucking Afghan, you know? So of course it was never going to be fixed because of the level of this idea that corruption is what comes out of countries being a basket case is, is wrong, by the way. It's the offshore system that makes these places a basket case. Because you've got this, all you, you know, every, everyone who gets into power, they just get into robbing everyone else, you know? Yeah. All, all this talk about how there was this huge Afghan army, like Biden was going about, he knows full well there's not a huge Afghan army, because there's like, for every one real soldier, there's five imaginary soldiers. You know, because all that pays going into the pocket of the generals who were more than happy to surrender because they can fuck off to Dubai and enjoy their flats and prostitutes and whores and stuff. You know, I mean, I, I use the words, you know, I'm getting carried away, but you get the picture, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's um, it's a fucking tragedy, man, for people who live there. And I don't understand. I genuinely do not understand what the fuck Biden is thinking, you know, and all these people sounding off. Oh, about how, you know, why should Americans carry this burden? There was no fucking burden compared to what is standard form around the world for America. You know? it, 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 it was not, there was nobody dying, you know, and there was no loss of, Biden was going about, oh, I can't, how can I in good conscience expect another American to lose their life? They were not in combat operations, as he well fucking knows. You know? I'm so disappointed in the guy. I, I mean, this sounds idealistic, but was quite happy to see the back of the previous one <clears throat> and i thought maybe that they might like having seen themselves demeaned by trump for so long they might actually try and live up to some standards higher standards you know idealistically i imagined that might happen but to see this has filled me with i'm so angry about it and it's less <laughs> anyway i've said my piece now but no as i said it is it might be easy for anyone listening to look at either either side of anything there, but it's you, you have been to these places and you do have contacts in these places, so it's just an educated yeah. opinion that you have of it, you know. And it is your opinion, and then that has to be said. Everyone yeah, has their own opinion. opinion. 
but you yeah, do have an educated way of looking at it, you know? You have an educated and um, a resourceful way of looking at it because you have people there and, and you know these people, you know, the grassroots of it all that are doing this. Well, I mean, look, I mean, Pakistani friends of mine would have a very different, not all of them, many would agree with me, but, you know, other, others, others we, 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 sit, we sit down when I'm there and smoke and we, we argue, with, you know, in a friendly way about different perspectives, I think. But this kind of shorthand, this shorthand, you know, like, oh, the Taliban are created by the West anyway. I mean, yes, yes and no, right? Like, they're primarily a colonial project of the Pakistani equivalent of the CIA, which is the ISI, you know? Because mm. the Pakistanis uh, in the 90s changed to backing them in a really, really meaningful big way because they wanted to head off like Pashtun nationalism that would basically split Pakistan up. And they wanted to head off India. They wanted to just have their thumb on Afghanistan. You talk to the, the kind of Afghans from the North who you might have seen on um, like uh, Tajik guys who had Instagram accounts. That, I don't know if they've gone quiet now, but we're, we're doing the same sort of thing as me, you know, collecting in these places, these Afghan guys who have Instagram accounts. Like Baba879, I think is one of them. Yeah, you know, if he, he 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 will, if you, I know if you were to ask him, he would say basically, yeah, the Taliban's all thanks to the Pakistanis. You know? mm. He accused me <laughs> of being part of some grand British. Pa like, there's a, there's a, there's a conspiracy theory amongst Afghans that essentially Pakistan is a, is a British project, right? I mean, of course, it's a creation of British colonialism in the sense that that it was split off India, but. That, that it's a grand conspiratorial project to kind of oppress the Afghans. And, and, and he was accusing me of somehow being part of that because, because he, he noticed that, that a lot of we were getting a lot of stuff from Pakistan and that, we, that a lot of the people, you know, a lot of our team are, are, are Pakistanis and stuff. So, you know, he, he was kind of spreading these kind of really far-flung conspiracy theories because they're standard conspiracy theories amongst Afghans, you know, that, the British and Pakistanis are colluding in some way to sort of keep the Afghans down, you know? And that's just taken as a fact by a lot of people there. So, because there's an, there's an ounce of truth to it in the sense that the Pakistani army had British origins, a lot of them used to be educated at, at Sandhurst and stuff, and ISI, the Pakistani kind of CIA, you know, they genuinely uh, were, 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 were and are very, very closely connected to the Taliban. They give them safe havens in Pakistan and stuff. And it's a colonial project, you know. The West, in, in, in quote unquote, the West, is not the only place that has colonial projects, you know, and behaves in a colonial way, imperialistic way. Every country that can do it does it, you know. And the Pakistanis are terrified of being surrounded by an India-friendly Afghanistan to one side of them and India to the other, you know. Yeah. So they want to make sure they're in control there. And a lot of them are a lot of them are increasingly in the army and in the spy agencies are into this like austere conservative Islam, even though a lot of them, the, the higher up the ranks you get in Pakistan, the more of them have dual nationalities, passports that mean they can fuck off to Dubai and Canada and Britain when the whole thing goes to shit, you know? And spend half their life there anyway in London and Knightsbridge shopping Paris and stuff. You know? So, you know, um, anyway, we've gone full political now. <laughs> no, it goes. It goes to show that money turns the world. At the end of the day, yeah. like, as as long as people are profiteering from it, somebody's suffering. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, from a, from a, I mean, no, to bring it back to cannabis, I mean, people were asking me, like, do you think they'll be, do you think they'll wipe out all the hash production in, um, in Afghanistan? Because, like, as people will know, like, there was a point in, more in the kind of early 90s when the Taliban controlled bits of Afghanistan, they really did eradicate cannabis production from bits of it as much as is feasible in a country like that. Uh, because, you know, they really genuinely hated hash in, in a way that they didn't and don't hate um, opiates and heroin and stuff, you know, the Taliban I'm talking about now. Like, they really didn't like hash because it's associated with that, in their minds, with exactly the sort of, like, radical, um, anarchic, kind of dervish, calendar culture stuff that I was talking about before, right, which they regard as just the, the absolute fucking nadir of, like, you know, they despise it, you know, so they hated hash because it had that sort of countercultural anarchic radical association in their minds, right? But, you know, since 2007, when there was a big crackdown up in the north, I forget the guy's name, but he was uh, governor of um, Balkh province, I think it was Abdullah Abdullah, he, he, he really cracked down on, there was a huge, huge harvest in 2007 and 2006, and really, really good quality first garden from Balkan stuff was around the sort of stuff I was talking about before. After that, they cracked down in a, in a big way in the north, uh, and the Taliban were like, oh, thank you, you know, because it just pushed it all down into places like Helmand, where there really wasn't a big tradition of growing it on a vast scale, pushed the whole industry into the hands of the Taliban, so they're taxing it all on the farm gates. You know, they, they, they've got control on the trade, on the, on, the, on, on the export of it to Pakistan and to, to, to Iran and, and, and stuff. And, and since then, like, as far as I know, they haven't really been interested in eradicating it because why would they? I mean, it's funding their whole fucking thing, you know? That and the mess and the opium and the heroin. But they can launder it all in Dubai. You know, they're happy, you know? can buy the guns and whatever, you know, and, and buy the flats and fast cars and the nice whatever, you know. So, so I don't think it's going to disappear. Um, it, 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 you know, it's the best of my, guess, the best guess I can make, it's still going to be around, but as for anyone like us and the people who are helping us being able to go and get seeds and stuff, not very likely, I don't think. Um, you know, that's, it's not, 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 not for the foreseeable future, right? It's not being eradicated. I mean, the, the, the one that's no silver line. It's, uh, it's always the genetics are going to be preserved there if they're not going to eradicate the hash production itself, doesn't it? So yeah, they'll still be there. Very, very, very slim silver lining to it. I know, I know. You, you, no, no, no. But I mean, it's a point where you've got to try and find them, haven't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's um, there is that. I hope, I hope there's, I hope that the the like. The, the, the sort of hybrid seeds aren't going to find their way in in any, in any meaningful way. Yeah, I've always been this last time. That's obviously a big problem, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, because of the way it is, because there are bits of, that are so remote, you know, and two thirds of the country or more is, is, is the Hindu Kush, you know, so, you know, there's bits of it that are just so remote, like Badak, bits of Badakshan in the east. So, yeah, there's always. You know, touchwood always going to be somewhere where there's the fields of the, the old plants still around. Um, and, and, you know, that's how it is at the minute. To the best of my knowledge, there's not been 
any real impact of, 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 of modern hybrid stuff there. So yeah, that is you know, silver lining, but <laughs> one that you have to reach for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's almost the exact opposite silver lining that I was thinking for why they've let the trade carry on. Like, if it's always going to be an acceptable, well, if it's becoming a more acceptable export, but like legal countries their market gets bigger with the with the legality of it interesting i i think that that is optimistic i think because the you see that throughout since 9 11 now and then you would see people say for god's sake why don't we um legalize the opium production there because it would take it out of the hands of, of of the you know gangs and the taliban which is the same thing really will blend into one and, and warlords and whatever, and and um, and and you know, why don't we legalize it? But there's so many logistical problems for that. I mean, I I, I don't know, right? I can only guess, but the thing to bear in mind, right, is the situation now. Every crazy fucking militia, extremist, Islamist from Central Asia, Chechnya, you name it, is in Afghanistan right now. From, China, from even the, the extremist end of the Uyghurs, you know, Tajikistan, India, Bangladesh, they're all there now because they were all helping the Taliban. They were all up for the, you know, the civil war that a lot of people expected to be coming. Now they've got nothing to do. The Taliban's got to keep them on side and it's got to put on this nonsense about how they're not psychopathic fanatics for the benefit of the media. You know, they're trying to put on this face of not being that bad and everything. Partly because they need people to work in the government for them, because none of them are capable of doing that. So they need to keep all the civil servants in. Anyway, my point is, they've got this balancing act they've got to make between all those things. But you're not going to find the West, I don't think, going touching them with a barge pole in terms of wanting to be associated with them, really, in any meaningful way. So the likelihood of them being invited into some legal market to supply Israel or... or <laughs> Or Australia or America or Canada or whatever. I don't mean so. I mean it's like unfortunately, yeah, it's maybe Pakistan or somewhere will, will will eventually start taking that route in the next decade or so. But Afghanistan, I don't mean so, man. Not if it's under the Taliban with any recognizable form of the Taliban. You know, the thing was, like I say, with the opium thing, eighty percent of people in the world don't have access to adequate medicinal painkillers, right? You know, because of all the, the extreme attitude that the Yanks have taken to it. You know, there's, most people don't have that luxury of having morphine when they've got terminal cancer and stuff, you know. So, yeah, it would seem to make a lot of sense to have, um, you know, to, to, to welcome Afghans into supplying that. But there's just too many complexities to it, you know, of, of how to get that from the fields to Karachi or whatever and then into some regulated framework that any hey man they offshored enough money they know how to fucking do it no no but that's that's the that's the laundering of that's the laundering of the proceeds i'm yeah. talking about a, a legal yeah putting the product into a legal market i i understand it's, it's to, 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 to take some to take some poppy straw like uh, they do in tasmania whatever, from from a field in kandahar to karachi yeah just put it in a truck right but yeah. i mean in, in, in a way that it would be a feasible proposition for, for for Western governments to be willing to do when they're not knowing really who the ultimate profits are going to 
is not, I think, a likely thing. Like, because effectively, you've got a medicinal opium trade that's funding people who would probably quite happily do another 9 11, you know? Uh, I mean, I'm, not, I'm talking extreme men, you know, but they were the guys who allowed, uh, who, who refused to, have, you know, these are the same guys who refused to hand over bin Laden to the Yanks after 9 11. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about. So I don't, I just can't see it ever being something that any, uh, you know, uh, G7 country would even be willing to discuss. Never mind, think about how it would work. No, that's fair enough. I, I I always figure people were happy just to pop up in an illicit country <clears throat> under like the same name as their legal country's fucking company name. Well, they then, don't, then it's all clean, <laughs> like. Yeah, I mean that. But that's sort of that's money laundering rather than like you know, um, which yeah, the West is more than happy you know, to. Like, I mean, HSBC in Mexico, they would, wasn't it? Was it Mexico? Yeah, they were just they had it like you could just bring in a suitcase of cash. You know? But but I mean, but you know, with the opium trade, it's a much more. There's some real ideological issues with it in America. You know, they don't even have medicinal heroin. You know, diacetyl morphine. In the states, because you know? it's so taboo, you know? like in in hospitals, you know, and and they won't they won't touch the Indian. India's got a bigger um, legal opium uh, market, you know. So, um, you know, they they because in in India a lot of it gets diverted into the illicit market, and 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 and, and a lot. Of, and I think it's all produced as like opium gum, you know, like proper opium. opium rather than um, the way it's done for the medicinal production in, you know, in the UK, like in Suffolk or wherever, there's huge fields of, of coffee, but they do it with some straw, you know, they just cut the whole plant down and then they turn the back into uh, heroin and coated morphine and stuff. So it's, it's, it's not, um, you know, they're, they're really, like I say, they'd rather have 80% of the world not have access to adequate painkillers than count the possibility of... That's cool, man. Sorry if I'm taking you off course. I, I like the the discussion we can have almost. Like you, you definitely have different views to myself on some of these things, and I'd like to be able to tease that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm, I'm happy for you to come back at me. By the way, like if you if you think I'm if you just like because I I'm, I'm argumentative. Like if 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 if, if you want to tell me that you think I'm talking shit, then just go for it. You know, like because I'm just I, I'm conscious that I just ramble and rant and. and and and, 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 and monopolise the space, you know? Like, no, man, we're just trading logic here. Um, yeah, 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 sure, no, but I mean... Different perspectives of things change, change the way your logic kind of flows down the river, river. so I really appreciate your side of it, to be fair. I mean, the offshore stuff is super interesting, like that you were mentioning about. It, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of really good um, books on it. If you want to, like, uh, check out, like, the, the whole problem with Afghanistan and that, there's some... Um, Thieves of State is the really, really like, um, what's her name, Sarah, something that was mentioned around while ago. But anyway, the um, that's a you know, that's from someone who actually worked in Afghanistan for years and really, really understands like the extent to which the are, are, I mean, by like Britain, America, you know, um, Europe, the, the offshore system that's being created in the West is, is, is the root of why these places are baskets, you know, basket cases. It's not, it's not something intrinsic to the 
culture or something in the way that it's very easy for outsiders to assume. You know, it's it's, it's not some backsheesh culture and like backhander culture that's natural for people in those places. It's really like facilitates fundamentally it's possible because of what because of the willingness of the city of london to just like turn a blind eye to where all this stuff comes from because everyone can just deny that it's their responsibility that all this dirty money is just pouring into london places. it's kind of funny isn't it it's like oh you've got money oh, we don't care how clean it is just come on bring it over so yeah, yeah it goes down on our G- gpd there we go lawyers accountants you know all the big accountancy firms all these respectable quote unquote people who, who who live these respectable lives nice affable friendly people dealing with that's you know that they are making it possible for politicians to walk off with the hiv aids budget you know think about that the consequences of that walk off with the whole hiv aids budget for it's got the worst HIV AIDS, AIDS problem comparable to somewhere like Nigeria, practically. Right? It's unbelievable. And, and, you know, they walk around in their suits and their friendly demeanours like Boris Johnson and people, and, and they know exactly what's going on, and they're quite happy to ignore it. And they could be doing something about it. And unfortunately, what's happened since 2016 is that that's essentially what the UK has become. We're the butler to the world, you know? We're, we're, we're the... We're the you know, I mean, in the old-fashioned sense, the butler who can sort you out for something for Friday night, find you a girl, do whatever, you know, like Jeeves and Worcester sort of stuff. You know? That's essentially what we've decided to become now. And, and that's what comes with it. You know, there's a willingness to be complicit in unforgivable things, you know. Um, and we're still not prepared to countenance the possibility of legalising cannabis. They're making too much money themselves. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think I, I don't. I think in. I think honestly, if you want my take on that, it's more fear of the tabloids, fear of the fear of the Daily Mail is primarily what comes with that. But I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's that's that's certainly why Labour wouldn't do it. But yeah, I mean, Johnson and people are corrupt in a way that New Labour in power, not talking about New Labour out of power, because you know Mandelson, Blair. Hobnobbing with all kinds of dictators and stuff these days, but that probably is not comfortable. You know, Brown, Gordon Brown was genuinely scared. You know, like Labour back then, they 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 uh, blanket decriminalised it. You know, very very briefly, he moved it down to a different um, to a level where you, you wouldn't have. You know, there was no chance of you getting any real trouble for possession and stuff. But then that's what he was about to do. Then the police jumped on. They weren't. They were the ones who weren't happy with it, because you, 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 they, they would then lose that ability to just, to, to, to stop people. That, 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 they, that made it much harder for them to police in the streets, as far as they were concerned. You know, so they were the ones who, who, who scared Blunkett out of doing it. And because um, if, if you talk to any of this lot in private, to the best of my knowledge, almost all of the what in the in the House of Commons, apart from the real nutcases. Would say, okay, yeah, of course, of course, of course, cannabis shouldn't be illegal, you know. Yeah. They'll fucking smoke it at university, and their kids smoke it, and whatever, you know. And then, and, and you know, they'll Tories. I think are the biggest drug fiends out of any of the parties. Fucking coke snorting <laughs> bankers, you know. That, that, 
Really? I'm not even I'm barely joking. No, I know, I know. They yeah, got the bankroll to pay for it. That's why. That's man. the thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and they, they like the idea of being a naughty boy, you know? That's, they, they think that's great. They get a real thrill out of it, you know? Mm. It's exactly what they like, you know? The, the illegality of it, of them, and like breaking the rules and stuff, it's what they live for, you know? That's, it's, that's the kind of personality that I'm sure of it. And, and um, so, yeah, but anyway, I mean, like, I, I think, I, I don't think there's any grand conspiracy behind their unwillingness to do it, but it's pure cowardice and moral, moral cowardice. Maybe with Theresa May, perhaps not. She's the kind of, like, real brittle morality kind of bitch. You know? she, she pissed me off, man, because it was only, like, weeks before she got in power. She was like, you know what? We should really legalise all this shit and just kind of get rid of all the... Oh, did she? I didn't realise that I'm being... Okay, uh, you know, it's probably one of them things that they realise they can get more votes by saying stuff that they don't That's believe exactly in. That's exactly where it was. Exactly where it was. I hadn't realised she'd actually said that, because the thing is, you know, she um, made this big thing about the modern slavery stuff, you know, like, mm. which infuriated me, because she was making this big moral crusade about how we're not going to have the nail bars and the human trafficking and stuff. You know, with all the people brought over from Vietnam and stuff in, in lorries, you know, taped up in fucking bin bags in, 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 in sort of the bottom of lorries and stuff coming over from Dover and stuff, you know, who then end up on the, on, you know, growing that kind of stuff we were complaining about in, in, in these cannabis farms, quote unquote, in, inside houses and stuff. You know, she's, they're all well aware of that being a thing and how it's, a, you know, how keeping it illegal is this major reason why there's so much human trafficking into the UK is because they worked out that they could use these teenagers to, to do this, to, to, to run these farms, to do all the growing inside these farms. Just, you know, literally, you know, you break it. You're some, you're some kid in Vietnam in the boondocks and your uncle breaks his leg with driving a scooter or whatever and you can't afford the medical bills, right? So your family basically uh, put you in touch with the, like a, 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 like a labor place to get you a job which involves you getting into debt. You, they, they take out loads of debt to pay the medical bills and have to pay it off, you know? And the way you end up doing that is you end up getting sent off to some country that you don't even know where it is, you know? Right? So they, they get trafficked all the way from Vietnam through China, through Russia, through Ukraine, across the green border. And then um, eventually, like six, nine months later, end up in, in Calais, you know? Someone gives them a coin, they get across in the lorry, get to a phone box, which is how it used to go, then I still have that, and, you know, phone someone in Manchester, comes and picks them up and drives them up. The next thing they know, they're locked inside this building being explained how to grow weed, you know? There's like hundreds of kids like that in the UK right now, you know, and all the Tories and people, they know it, you know, and they know that's what's going on. But they haven't got the moral substance to make a fight for it to actually be doing anything about it. Just legalise it completely, there wouldn't be a problem with it. Course. That's the, the problem is, is when they would, I, I can never see that from any government here. The problem is, is when you make it a taxable product, which is why I think it will end up knowing the government's over here, then you still leave a black market open. The minute that there's a, the minute that if, if you can't do it yourself, the minute you have to pay for it, even legally, you still create a black market. There's still going to be a place for a black market. That's the problem at the minute. Um, because the knockoff trainers, isn't it? Well, I mean, if they yeah. don't make it accessible in price, Which then there's right. still a, ma a market. Even if they do, I mean, look, I'm not being funny. As personal growers, 
I think we know the cost of what, I mean, we would buy decent kit. We're not using loads of just shitty Euro barn reflectors and a thousand of them in a room to sing electricity. I mean, a personal hobby growers doesn't cost a lot to produce this stuff. You know, I don't know where the prices come from on the street. I really don't because it doesn't cost a lot to produce. I mean, there's always going to be a place for a black market. It's just going to get worse for the people in them conditions that you're talking about there, Angus. You see, I it's don't... It's going to get harder and harder. I don't, I don't think so. Like, if you... I mean, you're right in the sense, like, of course, there's still a black market for, for knockoff cigarettes, right? Yeah. The taxes are so high on it. It's part of the reason for that. And there's always, it's always going to be possible to produce it cheaper somewhere else. But... The problem in like Canada and America and stuff at the minute is that the way, basically, basically things will change when the serious, you know, big money gets involved with the crop scientists and, 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 and they turn it into, um, and, and they actually get working in cannabis to turn it in, in, in the way that like wheat and things have been transformed, which was transformed after World War II going through the 60s and 70s. In what they call the green green revolution, you know, when they transformed agricultural production, at massively, massively higher yields and, and for much, much cheaper, much lower labour, you know, just running combine harvesters across fields, that's going to happen to cannabis, <clears throat> and you're going to be able to produce, in terms of just producing THC, the amount it will cost you, if you think of it in pure THC terms. Once you once you've got places, you know, like in the Midwest of, of America, growing vast fields. Of, of, of ultra high density packed together plants costs a minimal even vastly cheaper per, per, per gram than what we're able to do in an indoor setup and what they're able to do in the states these days and the way it's grown in Canada and the lights and stuff you know if if you, if, if you talk if you talk to crop scientists you read, read someone like Ernest Small who's a guy who works for the Canadian government who I, I regard as like a really good person to read if you want to get a really like scientific understanding of cannabis just on the plant side of it you know read, read what he said i mean he got <clears throat> he, he he's he, he's the guy who like the you know the the the, the thc guidelines for the difference between hemp and marijuana like quote unquote you know he, he his his work that was based on it. He, he disagrees with it now he says they need to change that incidentally but anyway if you read him when he got sent he, got, he, got, he went looking around the warehouses and stuff of these new companies in canada that under the legalization thing, he just couldn't believe what he was seeing. You know? I mean, he didn't, I didn't even say it to the people themselves when he went around looking at it, but he was like, fucking hell, you know, just like the amount of wasted space between all the plants and the branching of the plants, all this stuff to, to someone who's a crop scientist, they look at that and they go, this is just rookie stuff, you know, like in terms of yield per square meter, you know, once they've actually turned these plants into these like, um, like a kind of candy floss stick, as it were, you know. See a green style. Single, single stem, no branching, just a, just a big bud, with the with the shade leaves around it. Minimal shade leaves, though. So so all the energy that the plant is making is going into making bud, and you're planting them as close as you feasibly can, right? In the actual yield you get from that relative to what you've got when you've got all the branches and stuff is is astronomically higher. So once you've done that and you've got them, you'll be able to produce this stuff so, so cheap. But yeah, you may have a black market, but it, 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 it will be negligible compared to the, the nightmare you've got in 
California and the States now, I, mean, I say nightmare from the point of view of someone who's a regulator, the job it is to try and get the balance right between yeah. taxation and regulation. It's all, all the regulatory shit that's come with it. Like, I haven't been following it that closely, but, you know, there was, you know, there was a point, like, when, when in Canada, when you had all these um, startup companies, with, like, and their just, their share price was just sort of multiplying over, like, you know, a week, it would just multiply whatever, 10 times, and people making loads of money by just, like, taking a punt in all these new companies. And then suddenly, it, it just, they all just crashed, you know? Because people realise that you can make, you can, you know, you can do the same thing that they're doing in the warehouse in Canada for like a fraction of the cost in Colombia or whatever. You know, I, I'm I'm, talk, I'm talking broad brushstrokes because I don't know the details, right? But the point is that the production hasn't had a chance to catch up with them. Um, there's there's not we haven't got to a point yet where where cannabis is is, is um as a plant is, 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 has had what has already been done to wheat and every other thing you care to name that you eat. You know? When it does, oh, when it does, it's going to be a real shock for people who are trying to be entrepreneurs in this industry who haven't caught up with the science because cannabis is barely, barely domesticated, even though it is, even though all these things that I sell like land grace and stuff, they are domesticates. It's barely domesticated compared to other things that we, other plants that we, we, uh, we consume, and and it, like, like um, if if you can just run fucking combine harvester over a field, you know, and if you can do all the weeding with with robots, which is what will eventually happen, and and you 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 won't, unless you can do the same thing, you're never going to be able to compete, um, and unless unless they tax it really really heavily you know because the production costs are going to be zilch yeah, that's a lot of sayings in this country i can't see it going any other way i hope i'm wrong i can't see it being you know, i can't see it being legalized for any other reason to make a shitload of money oh yeah of course for yeah, a government. I mean, that's I mean, my, my worry is i'm not saying that, i'm not saying that's the way i want it to go i'm saying i, I just can't see any other way with this country I'm, other countries be completely different i don't know but this country could you imagine any of our governments legalizing it for any other reason than to get us out of a deficit. That's why I yeah. think maybe it's coming. The, the pandemic and the money crisis. I think oh, yeah. maybe it's coming sooner than we think for the you, wrong I, reasons. I think I think you're almost certainly right because look, you can tie this all back to that discussion we were having about offshore, right? You look around mm. the Caribbean, you look at places like um, uh, Luxembourg or wherever, I mean, uh, places that have, have, have gone already gone for, for full, full legalization. Uh, many of them, it's because they bankrupted themselves. I, I'm not sure with Luxembourg, actually, I suspect, but it's a major offshore place. It's the reason that it occurred to me and it has legalized as well. But more famous sort of like offshore in the classical sort of stereo, the archetypal image of the, of the Caribbean island where all the crooks go and launder all their money. So many of those places have legalized because they bankrupted themselves by going all in on this offshore stuff. And, and, and they fucking just crashed, crashed their finances completely. So they're legalizing us just a desperate measure to try and claw some money in, you know? And yeah, absolutely, Britain has gone down that route, and I think you're absolutely right. Was once we've managed to, to, to wreck ourselves through the combination of, for some reason, leaving the world's largest single market for reasons I don't understand, and then, you know, coronavirus, all that stuff, if this, as soon as Biden decides to do that, 
and it's very, very likely we will because it's about the only thing that Democrats and Republicans can agree on. As, as, soon as, as soon as he decides to do that, of course Britain will tag along you know, in the way that we do with anything that he acts with. And, you know, these days, no, no, no moral um, substance to, to, to our country anymore. So, you know, it, it, yeah, of course, money, money talks. And I'd have thought, I'd have thought Tories would be as you know, <laughs> more likely than Labour. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, because Labour, Labour have to have to play this sort of constant defensive action against the Daily Mail and stuff. You know, whereas. Um, Tories, I mean, they do what they do as well, but not in the same way. It'd be easier for them to do. It would be, yeah, and and it would generate a lot of money very quickly. You know, in in a time of where countries need money, but we'll see. We'll see where it ends up. I mean, it's it's all speculation and opinions in it, but I I do think it's coming. I do. Yeah, I think you might be right, and sooner sooner than sooner than sooner than people might expect. I think. But I honestly, like, you know, it's anyone's fucking guess at what's going to happen tomorrow, never mind. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> things are now, it's just like you wake up and do I dare open newspapers. Yeah, so I don't read them no more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 I had such a nice time when I just, like, I stopped all, all reading any news and any social media for a while. It's like I yeah. back to this world that I've forgotten existed. Yeah, I've been doing something similar of late myself, mate. And I tell you, it's yeah. refreshing, isn't it? It really is. Uh, Resets your perspective. It you really does. How caught up your perspective is in all the bullshit. Yeah. It resets everything. And uh, yeah, just, just, everyone should do it. It's just it's sort of um, self discipline as much as anything, but also kind of like a, for their own mental health as well. Yeah. But yeah, I think we're going to have to do a part three the way this is going down because it's 10 past 12. <laughs> now neck of the woods but, um, yeah, yeah. But no it's, it's been an absolute pleasure mate as always and yeah um, i really enjoyed um, it it's been really really cool, cool discussion we've been yeah. down we've been, we've been everywhere tonight i don't think there's anywhere else we could have gone with that conversation but um no you I know mean, there's more meat left on the bone that's oh, that's what's strange like we've been scratching the surface of various areas but we haven't dived in so yeah, yeah, real pleasure to have you, man. And well, thanks for, thanks, thanks for agreeing to do another one. And, 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 um, and yeah, I mean, like, thanks for the questions as well because it's taken it in some really, you know, some really interesting directions. I wasn't really sure how it was going to evolve, but mm. sort of ended up tying together in a fairly neat way, I suppose. It's all just a discussion, is what we do, mate. We try and keep it light and discuss, basically. GMO likes his devil's advocate. <laughs> That always makes it interesting. What works for me? <laughs> yeah. So, no, but honestly, it will be an absolute pleasure to do it again at some point in the future if you have the time because it, it definitely just sort of flows, I think. And I, I sit here quite quiet because I'm learning. I really am. And it's a pleasure to listen to. For that exact reason, I stand the tourist side of things. You've lived a lot of this, man. You've lived a lot of the things that a lot of us probably dream about doing or would like to think we would be doing in ideal words, or at least you, you, if you haven't lived it, all, all parts of it, you, you've got a lot more knowledge and people out there that you've worked with. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to listen to. And, well, um, thanks. I mean, you're too, you're too yeah. nice. But I mean, like I do, yeah, I think it works really nicely. Like this, this setup we've got. So I'm definitely up for doing, doing more whenever, whenever you feel like it. I'm, I mean, I, 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 hopefully, I mean, you know, like I'm saying, who knows what's happening tomorrow. But I mean, yeah. hopefully I'm going to be 
doing more collecting once it becomes possible. So I might be in time zones that make it a little bit more more <clears throat> more tricky, but I'll still I'll still find a way to to do another one if yeah, cool, I possibly can, even if it means getting up at nine o'clock in the morning and hitting the gong or oh, it's nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Six o'clock or five o'clock was what I was meaning, but you know, and, and, and smoking a joint just to get in, in the zone, <laughs> even if it means that. But, um, yeah, like, uh, we shall see, we shall see anyway. I'm just going to bang your link in chat. Obviously, everyone would know who you are by listening, but um, your blog's on there as well. You can find the blog going through the main menu. Um, the Realty Company obviously doing lamb race domesticates, which like the word I had trouble pronouncing last time, but definitely check out the site and, and the selection and the blog. And obviously the social media is the Real C Company as well. So um, yeah, everyone please check them out and have a look. I'm definitely interested in the Afghan 90. I'll definitely look at that as it evolves, mate. Um, but yeah, a massive thank you. And um, is there anything else? Did you want to let anyone know about anything coming up before we... Uh, jump off or anything that is important for yourself um you haven't mentioned uh i reckon i've talked more than enough <laughs> <laughs> people have heard quite enough of me i think but yeah Perfect. thanks so much again yeah i really enjoyed it no cool man it's been a, it's been a pleasure so um yeah i think we'll wrap lads but um everyone in chat a massive thanks as always for uh, joining us and the listening um definitely check out um, the real sea company the links in there and uh, check out the blog and uh, we possibly be back Friday. I know a lot of people are going to be um, at the uh, event and um, we might try and do something. I'll speak to GMO if he's cohesive by that time of night after we've been at a festival type of environment. But um, we might do something live that night. If not, we'll be back the following week, I'm sure, with many tales and stories. I'm sure Invisible Sun will have a few if he jumps on. So um, a massive thanks again. Jimo, Angus, always a pleasure, lads. Um, and uh, we will speak to you all soon. Yeah.